Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. Get going here. So welcome, everybody. Uh, episode 257, uh, Galen Trombley Show. Returning guest, one of my all-time favorite guests. I think one of the best. Uh, between knowledge, John, between your knowledge and ability to hold a conversation, which are like two things that I like when people come on this. You, you nail both of them. So um, John Mahalan, he is chiropractor and clinic owner, ideal athlete chiropractic in Plattsburgh. Uh, been doing this for a long, or you've been doing this for a long, long time along with a bunch of stuff with Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, consultant for New Zealand Olympic Cycling Team, consultant for the USA Bobsled and Skeleton Teams, amongst a bunch of other stuff. Is that good enough? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> As, you, you've been on, so we don't want to... Uh, if people want to hear the whole background, we'll go back. This is going to be kind of more diving into extra stuff and new topics and... Yeah, looking forward to it. ...fun things. So... John, tell, keep going about the, the skiing today. So you went up backcountry skiing. I know you do that. I do have a couple questions on the one I saw the other day at Whiteface when you went up on that one and it had like kind of like this above the clouds. Yeah. Yeah. So I do a little, I do a little bit of every kind of skiing. Um, I don't know how people don't have hobbies around here in the winter. I actually, I do know several of them in there. Most of them are quite miserable. Um, and, you know, embrace the cold if you got to live in it um, and can't retire in Florida yet. Um, or wherever you'd like to go. Um, so yeah, I do a little bit of, uh, regular downhill skiing at, you know, Whiteface usually or Jay. Um, but what I've really gotten to love the last four or five years is, is more backcountry and backcountry is where you put special things on the bottom of your skis and that lets you grip and you can walk up. Like I do like today, I did Lion Mountain. Uh, you can do a lot of the high peaks and you skin, it's called skinning up. And then at the top, you take the skins off and you, in some cases, my setup, you can lock your heels like a regular downhill ski and, Ski back down through the woods. How easy is it to ski? Like when, when you have, or how easy is it to climb with skins on? I should say that's. I mean, f- other than the physical fitness part, because like right here, this is basically them skinning up. Yeah, yeah, and that's so, out west, clearly, um, where you have these beautiful open, yeah, above tree line, and they can kind of pick. Yeah, they they like in that picture, they're walking kind of more sideways across the slope. Yep. Unfortunately, the Adirondacks doesn't really ever look like that, so you're basically usually skinning up pretty much a straight vertical at whatever the least tight tree uh, uh trees are and it's tough it's technical and it's super narrow and yeah i mean how often do you slip going up uh the slipping isn't much of an issue so the, the, the so they hold pretty well the, they hold pretty okay. well you can't walk up a vertical you know ice sheet of ice but uh, when it gets too steep Actually, the bindings that you hook your boots into actually have little heel raises. So when the pitch gets steeper, you can flip those up. So you're heel, a little less stress on your calves. Kind of like this right here? Yeah, yeah, yep. And um, and when it gets too, too steep, you start going more diagonal, back and forth, kind of switchbacking across the, the slope. Is, is that possible? Like you said, on some places with dense trees, is that even possible? To going up I mean, or coming I, down? I mean, either one going sideways because most of the time... No, or, or, that's the problem in the Adirondacks. Yeah. So Adirondacks are quite unique, and I'm no expert, but... Even in areas that are well conserved, like Vermont and New Hampshire, 
have a much, I won't say older because it's not older, but um, I guess just a bigger history with backcountry skiing. So there's actually a lot of areas in Vermont and New Hampshire that have been groomed, like where little saplings have been trimmed to allow for actual better skiing for people that want to do backcountry skiing. Adirondacks, you know the rules and regulations inside the yeah. the blue line. You can't do any of that. And in fact, other than a couple of exceptions from years and years ago, one being um, um, the Wright Peak, which is one of the high peaks over by Algonquin, there was a, there's a ski trail there that's been cut kind of for skiing, and it's wider. But other than that, Galen, it's crazy because I think, again, I'm no expert, but I think if you checked with some of the ranges, I think it's only like six or eight feet wide is the permissible width that you could cut a hiking trail. It, is that coming and going? going that's up just and down? period. Yeah, like well. if you're going to trim a tr- make a brand new trail i think the width i mean i'm sure you've done some hiking yeah and they're not very wide no and so That's you can pick, right. you said six, yeah six, six feet? feet i yeah. think maybe eight so it's not like you can cut this thing made for skiing so it's more kind of like you're either you got to be pretty good on skis um and you'd better be pretty good at learning how to scrub speed when, whenever you get a chance when, so when you come down so if you're coming down the hill let's say you're going up blind mountain and you want to traverse or you want to ski back down yep is there oftentimes someone's traversing up as you're trying to ski down where like you would have yeah, to cross well, pass? Yeah. So n- yes and no. Um, Lion Mountain specifically has, we do not go up. We, we're not skiing really anywhere near the hiking trail. It's a totally different part of the mountain. But I mean, other skiers coming up. Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So, so today, no, because the conditions were horrible and I was the fool for being out there in the first place. No one else was <laughs> silly enough. I just wanted to work out. Um, but after the snow, what was that last week? Um, I passed eight or nine people one day on a Saturday morning where, you know, you can hear people coming down and you just, you know, I was with my dog that day. So you just step off to the side and they come kind of skiing. So you yield for the people coming down. Yeah. Although going up is more strict, I guess kind of a little more strict in that whoever sets the track, they call it the skin track where you kind of tend to just follow who's been before just because it's easier. So you don't um, necessarily ski down the same track. No, okay. no, and not some of the times you do, some of the times you don't. So in, again, in Lion Mountain, there's stretches where you're just skiing along the skin track on the way down, just like you're like a little bobsled run. And then other times with Lion, what makes it so nice is there are three different areas that open up into like these birch glades, where then you can get off the skin track and you can pick your own line kind of down through the powder between the trees. Exactly. So this like is that. blade skiing on Lion Mountain. So this there you is. Go. There you go. Like this is where this is more open. Like that's, this looks that's, fun. That's one of the glades. Okay. That's where you pick your own line, and then at the bottom of the glade, you know, you just keep an eye on where the skin track is, and now you you kind of do the flatter stuff along the skin track, and then it gets steep and opens up, and you kind of pick your own thing again, and you know, yeah, that's exactly where I was today. And this is what it looks like going down most of the way. Yeah, except today there was just no powder and just rock hard solid ice uh-huh. everywhere, um, which is why no one else was out there. So when you go down line, when you hit spots that do, I mean, what's the What's the technique if you're going down? And it's not good snow. I mean, when you're going over rocks. Sometimes you just have to. You just kind of bump over them. Very, very slowly. Yeah. For me, so um, I'm a real decent skier. I am no expert. Um, I can get down just about anything. It just might take me a little longer than than some others. Um, I mean, I've seen guys that are just you know world class that just fly down through these glades. Um, but again, it all comes down to um, conditions, right? When you've got you know boot deep or knee deep powder. Uh, it's a lot more forgiving um, on mistakes, and it helps control your speed innately when the powder's deep. 
when you're in powder, because I've only I, again I've skied. When I say I've skied, I think I'm still under 30 times skiing in my life. Mm. So like it's not you know I, I don't go that often, but. I've only been in powder a couple times. Mm. I found that powder is very slick at times. It's it feels slow because you had to go through it, but mm-hmm. I find that sometimes you just like it's almost like you slip out of the snow a little bit. Like you don't fall backwards, but it does kind of these little bursts of acceleration. Well, it almost th- like break through. Yeah, I think the tendency is it's a totally different sport than regular because you have to skiing sit, sit back surfaces. More, right? Well, no, but that's everybody's one of the bigger mistakes people okay. make is the instinct is to sit back. Okay. And you don't really, you shouldn't really sit back because that's when you feel like your skis are shooting out in front of you um, is if your weight gets too far back. And so you still want to be balanced mm-hmm. on the skis. Part of it too around here is that a lot of people just don't have powder skis. Why would you? Are yeah, those, especially are those wider. Yeah, why, exactly. Okay. Wider skis because most people are skiing at the resorts. Yeah. And even... Yeah, I know a lot of friends that I ski with casually at Whiteface, and God forbid there's a, a semi-decent powder day, which are few and far between. But, you know, they're skiing like kind of bumps where it's boot deep and they really, really are uncomfortable or just flat out don't like it just because they're not used to it. Um, like what, when, you, when you went out west, yeah, I mean, it's powder everywhere, right? Oh, well, no, not always, but but certainly bigger dumps than we get out here traditionally, yeah. And, and I, that was wild. a big learning curve for me when I went out to um, – uh, Revelstoke in British Columbia with a friend. Uh, the second time we went out there, we did a day of heli skiing. First time ever doing that, you know, where they helicopter you up. What was it called? Revelstoke? Revelstoke is the town and the resort name is the, is the name of the mountain. Um, it's uh, the highest vertical drop in North America of any other ski resort. It's a, something like 5,800 feet. <sighs> wow. Um, with no altitude. Like the summit's only 8,000 feet. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get, you know, you get, I mean, that's another... I mean, almost double white face for vertical, um, 40% more, something like that. So um, this is it right here? 40%, 70%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it there. And so the summit's only 8,000 feet, so you don't deal with a lot of altitude issues. Uh, Mount McKenzie is the actual name of the mountain. The resort is called Revelstoke. Um, very challenging to get to in a way. It's about a five-hour drive from Calgary, six hours from Vancouver, so it's kind of in the middle. Wow. Uh, but they get tons and tons of snow. It's off-piste stuff, which means you know you ski down some of those bowls, no real runs. You kind of pick your own line. And there's plenty of groomed runs as well. So, so we've been what, out there twice. It's, it's great. That's what this would be right here. Yes. So you could ski down that bowl because it looks you like there's actually marks right there. Yes. You could ski basically in a lot of these places, particularly west, you can kind of ski just about anywhere you want within boundaries. Um, wow. User beware. You know, but these are also places where avalanche control is taken extremely seriously, and they're blasting if the after big snowstorms and things like that. So, but this is all open skiing right here. Pretty much, yep. so you can get people. Can, do people go up there and ski off of that? Is oh that, yeah, yeah. You can go right to the summit. Wow. Um, you're not looking. I think that looks like it's a picture from the other side. So the lifts up would be on the other side of that peak. Um, yeah, you can kind of see here if you click. You know, that's just the um, the the sketch of, of the trail map. But to put it in perspective, I mean, it's you take two gondolas just to get up to the main lifts. That's how high. Oh, wow. They, oh, have, yeah. a, they have a run from the summit that's something like nine and a half miles long. So it's kind of like skiing from Peru to Plattsburgh or vice versa. And that takes you, that, that would go all the way down. Like that would all go the way down back past to the your car. Yep. All the way back to the car. Wow. And like you said, it's about 5,800 feet of vertical. A lot of people haven't heard of it. Um, yeah, it's very reasonable compared to skiing in the States price-wise, especially with the Canadian exchange rate right now. So when you say, uh, um, what were you just saying before about the, 
Oh, the vertical. So how yeah. do you, how is vertical calculated? Because that's one thing I never. It's not the height of the mountain. It's just is it the pitch down? It's in most cases yes. It's it's the vertical feet lost from the highest access point of the ski resort to okay. the bottom of the ski resort, which in theory should show the steepness of it. Well, no. No, so, so, so it, because you're not measuring distance. So you wouldn't know pitch without a, a length of distance. Okay. Um, because it would depend on the run. If you had a 3,000-foot drop in vertical gotcha. from the top of the summit lift to the bottom, but, but the, what if the run's you know nine miles long compared to one that's vertical straight down? Um, so, so you'll get pitches you know, at some resorts like uh, you know, some of the diamond or double diamond, which is, you know, the more advanced slopes. I mean, you yeah. could easily see pitches that are forty to forty five degrees, which doesn't sound like much, but it, it seems pretty vertical when you're on it. What would what would Skyward be? You know what we always talk about that going up. Skyward's tricky because the first like twenty yards is very steep. Yeah. It intimidates people. That kind of what they call the head wall. Yeah. That might be for maybe twenty yards. That might be somewhere in that like forty degree range. If and, I had and to then guess. I'd say it probably goes out to about 45, 50. No. Maybe less. I don't think it's going anywhere near that steep. 50 degrees looks like a vertical wall when you're on it. Okay. I've That's what I was wondering. I've... No, it doesn't. If it, you ask contractors or construction guys that know like roof pitch and things, yeah. a 50 degree slope um, when you're on it is extraordinarily like, do you ever watch any of the crazy videos on YouTube? Like the Red Bull guys that like hike up and ski yeah, down these bop. Alaskan and they literally look like they're skiing down a vertical wall. It's like, I don't even know how they stay on that. Well, that's what I was wondering like this. It's like this from like yeah, quite no, a bit of a drop. The, the craziest stuff you'd see might be fit in the 50 something degree range. Wow. So 40 degree slope, uh, for skiing is, is quite steep, very steep. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can pull. I want to see if they get have this uh, point of view, like a point of view of skiing down. Well, there you go. Like this. So that's that's 50 degrees. It looks like a vertical wall. Even from here, Ooh. it looks like a vertical wall. That's what I'm saying. 50 that degrees. Is... No one's skiing casually down 50 degrees. I mean, not, not, you know, no casual resort skier. Or I should say, no, yeah, I had it wrong. If you go down if you go down the wall, the, the first, like you said, maybe 20 yards of... Uh, skyward, maybe it, forty. It, it flattens out. Probably in the, the wrong way. Probably like thirty. Thirty. Okay. Wow, that's insane. Maybe, and that's you, a total guess. Usually, when you see like a forty-five degree angle, you're like, that doesn't seem that steep. But I know it. It really, really is. When we were out in Alaska, um, and there's guys that will ski down that. There are many, many guys. Not me. Not this guy. <laughs> I'm too old. Oh my god. That that that's. And I wouldn't have done it even when I was young. So I don't know. How what I'm steep about. is steep? Do yeah, that. you'll have to. You could do You're a deep, right. Yeah. You could do a deep dive, but um, when wow. you do the real crazy guys that that you know hike up. I mean, you think about the videos watching the guys hike up to those peaks to ski down. They're vertical, basically climbing. They have ice axes and crampons on, and they're basically hiking straight up a. I mean, mountain. look at that or this. Yeah, so that's Corbett's. That's a famous drop uh, run in uh, Jackson Hole. Um, they do a competition there every year and that's a similar, it's like, I mean, I suppose you could call it skyward on steroids in a weird oh, way, God. just because there's a, there's basically a vertical head wall that you yeah. have to drop off into. And then it kind of levels to very steep. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's there, they build it up and build it up till it's a, a vertical drop in. Wow. And they have competitions where guys are doing, you know, you know, multiple flips and twists dropping into it's, it. All yeah. crazy stuff. Um, have you done anything like I would I would consider back is backcountry skiing considered like an extreme sport. I think it would be mm. at some level. 
Well, or, at I mean, that level, would be, certainly. Yes. Like th- this no, I think around casual. here, no. I don't think you would call that an extreme sport. I mean, I think if you're not comfortable on skis, you'd call it that. Um, but there's a there's a very big scene locally um, that, that do a lot. I mean, there's many guys that have skied every high peak, up, up and down. Um, you know, so no, I don't think it's extreme. I think it's... Uh, it's adventurous for sure. Have you done the high peaks at all? Oh you yeah, I've white, done several. Did, you did white face, right? Yep. I, I, well, in that one this time I, I actually hiked up and then skied down. Um, but I have, I have skied white face a lot. So when um, you hike to the summit of white face, do you just come down the highway part or do you go, you can do either. So I you did cut the, over and actually go down. Well, not technically so the result. Yeah. Uh, I know people that do yeah. that would uh, ski up the toll road, hike up over the summit and then hike down to the resort and do laps there. Yeah. Um, I'm usually working out alone, uh, just by my schedule. And I, I just, I, I like working out alone. Yep. Then the problem comes, how do you get back to your car? If you start in one place and end up in another, oh, so uh, I yeah. usually try to end up either go up or down the toll road. And how, well, how long is that up the toll road? From the gate to the castle, where the the road kind of ends, is pretty much exactly five miles on the nose, five point oh. And what's the what's the pitch of that one? <sighs> Not very. So it's, it's, it's in fact, a pretty... it's, it's a very notoriously boring ski down. Mm-hmm. You have to almost actually be kind of pulling just to keep your speed up in spots. Um, so it seems steep when you're like coming down it on a bicycle. Or a car, but it is not very steep at all. So this photo right here, like, so that's that's obviously the castle or whatever you want to call yep. it up there. So this, that's just one of the turns in the road. So this would go up to that. Yes. And then what we see typically from Whiteface is actually on the other side. So the resort would be on this backside. Yes. Or this is the backside of the resort. Th- this is yes. Yeah, so that's the side okay. that you don't see any of the ski runs. That's facing the the lake, Lake Placid. Um. West. Yes. Okay. The ski resort face is kind of northeast. Correct. Yeah. Because you see it when you get to like little white face, you look over the, and you see. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Wow. That's, um, what's your favorite, what's your favorite ski? Like backcountry ski or any kind of these like trails going up? Locations you mean? Or, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm impartial to Lion Mountain just because I've done it so many times. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I live in Plattsburgh. So to me, I can be skiing in 30 minutes door to door. Um, it's a good workout. You know, you gain almost uh, right around 2000 vertical feet going up in like a little under two and a half miles. So you can be great workout, be up and down an hour and a half hour, 40 minutes. And then it's a hour round trip door to door drive. So, th- you know, three hours from my house back to my house, you can get a pretty good workout in. What, uh, how long does it t- typically take going up versus coming down? Uh, I, you know, most of my stuff the last year or two has been purposely quite low aerobic, yep. um, stress level. I'm trying to do a lot of what they call zone one, zone two. So yep. real keeping a heart rate down low. Um, so I'm certainly not racing up it and, uh, it usually will take me about an hour, 15 okay. hour 10 to get up and then 15 minutes down something like that how how quickly can you transition to downhill like you pull the skins off that pretty quick yeah so i don't have a race there i mean there's things called like ski mountaineering races yep. internationally they called short into schemo where they do this mix of boot you know hiking in their boots and skinning and skiing down and multiple transitions really really fun to kind of watch if you're into it um, i don't have any of these like super fast setups like the racers do yeah but i could easily you know, I just, it's a couple switches on my boots, a couple things to flip on the bindings, and then you rip the skins off and put your helmet on. And I mean, a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. At most. The, uh, I was gonna say, cause I've, I know there's people that, that, at least I know in Vermont, I'm sure other places too, where they skin up and they come down, they just kind of do it over and over again. Yeah. It comes at like resorts. 
Yeah, it's like yes. almost like a, uh, an endurance kind of. Yeah, they do. They've done uh, one of the more famous ones in in, our, in this world, at least, was uh, the last few years, and they've moved it a couple times. I, I think it's still in New Hampshire. Is basically one of these twenty four hour races. I'm not sorry, not twenty four hour races. It's uh, the last skier standing. So it was made. Oh, a, uh, it was made. <laughs> Going down so it's kind of like a Spartan hole or a Spartan race. Uh, for... Way, way worse. And that's coming you know from someone. Um, well, so, yeah. So the one I'm talking about is called The Last Skier Standing, but it was not an original idea. Um, they got the idea from this crazy guy in Tennessee. A lot of people may be familiar with the yeah. Barclays. Yeah. Barclays Marathon. Um, and so this same guy who, who did Barclays also created this arguably even more demented race um, on his property called Big's Backyard Ultra. And now this is running and walking, okay? okay? And so every year, and this is the skiing place got the idea for from this Big's Backyard Ultra. And so for the last, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years, if you, if you, there's a couple of documentaries out there about it now. Of the skiing um, one. Of, no, there is one out there of the skiing one from two years ago um, where these two guys just kept oh, going for days and days and days. Um, yes, went for like three days, like 90 something hours. And the, this is, yeah, that's it. So you might want to bookmark that. That's worth a watch. <laughs> so, the, so this one. So this is what it is. So and they, they ski up. And then just ski down. And they ski down. Now, this is the catch. So let me back up because okay. this is really interesting. Okay. And it should be interesting for anybody listening. Go back to the original. So now we're on we're on foot. We're in Tennessee yep. at this guy named Laz who invented these crazy screwy runs and competitions. Have and you all seen this. that documentary? All of them. Yes. yes. Many, many times. I've seen a couple. Over. I'm yeah. obsessed with the guy. He came up with this idea called Big's Backyard Ultra. And it's called that because it's literally in his backyard in Tennessee. Okay, so he invited all these ultra runners from around the world and they start. And basically he came up with a four point one two two something point, 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 basically a little over a four mile loop from his property through the woods, down the road and back again. Okay, at the top of the hour, the gun goes off and that entire group of people at any speed they want have to complete that 4.12 something mile loop. So you can run it fast, you can walk it really quick, you do whatever you want. The catch is at the top of the next hour, you have to be in the starting corral for the gun to go off and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. Okay. And as time goes on, people don't finish in time, people don't get out of their camp um, you know, and line back up in time, you're yep. eliminated. And the problem is it goes until there's one runner standing. And so, you know, this is most of these people will do laps that'll take them 10 to 12 minute miles. So, you know, you figure they're doing, and the lap at night on this race is slightly different. It's more of an out and back on the road, but it's the same length. It's all four, okay. a little over four miles. Most of these people are doing laps at fastest, maybe 45 minutes it takes them. Yeah. And if they're struggling or really want to need to recover or something, they might be doing 55 or 56 minute laps. So you've got to figure after a days that you have never had more than five to maybe 12 or 13 minutes to use the bathroom, to sleep and to eat and drink. Now you can eat and drink yeah. while you're going on the loop, 
but no one can help you. So you, if you want to, you know, load it up and get your calories while you're running, but so, so it has gotten crazier and crazier and a guy, and it usually comes down to two or three people once everybody else has dropped out and they just keep going and going and it becomes totally mental because there's no end. You don't know. <laughs> that, so that one started before the Barkley or after? After, I believe. I think Barkley's been around for maybe 20, 25 years. I think this has been more in the last And they're 10. both in Tennessee? Yeah, yeah. Different locations, but okay. all around his house. Because the the Barkley... So th- is it's called Last Man Standing on that one? Yeah. Or last Runner Standing? Last Man Standing, last I think. Man, so, Big's Backyard Ultra is so, what it's called. Big's, Big's Backyard, it'll fill in. Okay. There you go. So... <laughs> And that's the catch line. 4.167 mile loop. And you can see. It looks like the same guy. It is. Oh, it is the same guy. Yeah, it's the same guy who invented them both. Oh, okay. Yes. The the Barclays and Biggs. Laz Lakely. Yep. So this isn't. So if you scroll down, this is how crazy it's become. So in 2020, this famous ultra runner, Courtney Dellwater, went 68 laps. um, But Harvey Lewis just won it again this year and shattered the all-time record and did 108. So do that math. That's 108 times 4.167. So that's something like 450 miles. And that's in four ha- that's 108 days, hours. 4 days? Yeah, right? So it's 2448 96 five days, almost 5 days without more than a few minutes sleep at any point. Um and he's not a young guy. I was going to say how 76. Yeah. yeah, he's 40. He's 2 years younger than me. So he's, you know, 47. So yeah, it's really oh mind God. blowing. So to bring it back full circle. So the, and there's a few documentaries on Big's Backyard Ultra too. Not, not quite as well done as the Barclays one, but uh, interesting anyway. So this place in New Hampshire decided to take that same concept to a ski resort and make last skier standing. Same so concept. same concept. The only gotcha. difference is they have one hour to skin to the top of this smallish resort ski back down to their base camp and as fast as they want to go, they've got the rest of the hour to recover. And then it's hour after hour. And the same thing happened a couple of years ago. This guy from Utah won it. Uh, I can't remember his name, Um, but it was him and this other local kid from like Massachusetts that basically went, I think over like 24 hours just with the two of them left. And the real demented part with Barclays is, so let's say, can you imagine being Harvey? And this is the crazy part. The guy who won it this year and did 108 laps he can't keep going. It takes two to keep going. The race automatically ends. So the guy he was going with- 107. Did he, they both completed 107. And I'm trying to remember if the guy, I think the guy started 108 and then very quickly found, he just turned around and was walking back to camp. But Harvey still has to finish the 108 or else ne- no one wins. Oh. So he has to finish the last So it's kind of like, on. I know I'm going to win, but I still got to, because there's a time limit. You still got to push. And he didn't know necessarily that that guy turned around. True. You know what I mean? So that's that's the, the crazy part oh mentally God. is it's just you don't know when it's going to end. What What is, what's, uh, what's his name, Laz again? Laz. What, what, what is his background? Cause- so he was a, a bit of a competitive runner back in his day when he was young in the, I think, 70s and 80s. The Barclays uh, documentary goes into it a lot. But he's just become this ultra quirky kind of loner that lives semi-off the grid in Tennessee. And he based the Barclays off a prison breakout um, near his house. And actually the course, the Barclays course actually goes under the prison at one point. 
Um, it goes under this river tunnel under the prison. And basically, I think a guy or somebody or a couple of guys broke out. Um, it might have been in like the 80s from this prison. And they were found like 40 or 60 hours later. And they had only managed to go like a mile or two through the... It was such... Tech- well, it's kind of like Danamora here. Well, right. Except these guys actually got gotaways. The, a little the bit, The joke yes. was that the, it's so hilly and that it's such nasty... Uh, terrain that after like three or four days, these guys had only managed to go like three miles. And so Laz and his buddies back then said, oh, I bet, I bet we could do better than that. And out of that came this really crazy race called the Barclays Marathon. And it's, it's five laps, uh, alternating directions of this crazy course. There's something like over a hundred thousand feet of climbing the race is closer to like 125 miles long, and there's been only like 15 finishers in like the, 20 something years. But the Barkley, does the the Barkley has a time limit too, right? Yes, every lap, every lap. It was the time for the lap. Um, I want to say I don't every, know. I don't think there's a time hour, lap but, every lap, but like you have to be done three laps. I think within 36 hours, maybe. And then to go on or else you're pulled at that yeah, point. Yeah, there, there is a cutoff. I and then the, there's a, I think it's 60 hours to do all five. And I it, think it's basically 12 hours a lap is essentially what it is. And it's, so it basically goes, you have to go clockwise during the day, clockwise during the night, clock, well, you, counterclockwise no, you, day. It's nothing to do with, it's, it alternates each lap. I don't remember the order, but like, let's just say, the first lap would go counterclockwise. Second lap, everyone goes clockwise, then counterclockwise, so much, then clockwise. So it might just fall during the day and night exactly. because of time. And I think the last one is they just they go it's opposite. Who, it's whoever... And they make the choice, and then it's just kind of like... Whoever leaves the camp and starts the fifth lap first gets to choose which direction they want to go in, and then they have to alternate. But there's only been like... I think there's only been once or twice there's ever been two people to start the fifth lap. That's how challenging it is. Is that the same thing you have? Well, I mean, in order to win it, you still have to finish the lap. You have to finish within 60 hours. In fact, there's a really cool documentary on YouTube. Um, Oh, what's his last name? Gary. I think I watched this. Yeah, the guy misses by like six seconds. He literally comes in in like six seconds over the 60-hour mark. He's sprinting through this state park. So wild. And he's got the big red beard. Um, Because they do it. So the, the only reason I, the other reason I know this too is so I just looked it up. He lives here. Yes, they actually do the race in Frozen Head State Park. Yep, yep. So a little bit east of where he lives. Because I, I was just actually in Oak Ridge. Oh, there year. you go. My, so a you family that far. lives there, and I I would have loved to have gone and just like saw where it was, but yeah. I believe it's right here. Yep. Now I don't know exactly where the well. There's penitentiary. So yeah, it's, that's part of the course. So yeah, so it's it's out there, man. It's out there. So he's really, um, yeah, I mean, he just goes every possible mental kind of twist that this guy can come up with to make it more challenging mentally, he does. Because um, they don't know when he's going to start either. Well, no, they don't know when he's going to start, so you don't know, you can't really sleep. And like with the, the Bigs Backyard Ultra Race, it's like everybody, like the, the guy who ran 450 miles and got second place, Okay, everybody gets a DNF that doesn't win. So, so he literally so he ran cruel. ran for five days and got a did not finish next to his name officially. Um, you know, in the in the Barclays, you can run, 
you know, if you finish three laps, which doesn't sound like much, but that's roughly 75 miles and 60,000 feet of climbing. And I, I mean, you could probably count on two or three hands, the number of people that have finished three laps. That's called finishing the fun run. You know, that's the fun run. Then they go on to the real race. I remember when they had people that put in for it and they cut it off. It's only like, what, 40 people or something? 30 people? Well, no one knows how to get in. That's the thing. I've got a couple of good friends that are very elite kind of ultra runners and have been trying forever to get in. And yeah. But they don't even know what to do to get in. There's no real process. No one really knows. It's all word of mouth. And it's such a bizarre thing. But yeah, he's a weird guy. Um, Well, switching, uh, switching topics a little bit. Um, Kind of a bunch of different questions here. So sure. I want to start in the. So you put hidden talent would be maximizing efficiency in life. <laughs> and I'm actually curious because every time I talk to you, I feel like I get some little nugget of like a of a productivity hack or something, whether it be time, life, something with your body. But uh, what do you mean by that would be maximizing efficiency in life? How would you? And I don't know if. If if what did I say that was my my hidden talent? I yeah. think it's more of a, a mental defect or disorder. Probably okay. I I, I just, absolutely love it. That's it's like... one of I think it I think it if I was to reverse engineer it, one of my biggest pet peeves things. I mean I have a yeah I talk to my family. I have a lot of pet peeves. <laughs> um, I'm able to I'm able to hide fairly well in my business life, but um, one of the top. Probably the top by far is is inefficiency. Period. Like, yes, I travel a ton for work. I have for ten or fifteen years. Flown, you know, I'm up to forty nine states. I, I think I'm, I'll hit my fortieth country this summer. Um, I've been really lucky, and I've, I I I don't like to just say lucky because I've also prioritized it. You and I have talked about that. Yeah, I don't really it. spend money on anything else. Um, I like to travel, yeah. and I made that conscious decision ten years ago, and so. I'm lucky to tick a bunch of comfort uh, countries off for yeah, speaking gigs I've done and lectures and things like that. But also my free time, I try to I try to see everything, and, and I have seen our country. Like that's one of the big mistakes. What's is, the one you haven't been to? Uh, North Dakota, which is really frustrating because I've lived in Minnesota for seven years, two different times, and I like two hours, three hours away from North Dakota. I never made it there. That's so, so funny. So I got to make a trip to Fargo at some point, um, <laughs> I guess. But uh, no, I just. And travel industry might be one of the most inefficient, inefficient historically, and it just drives me bonkers. And the one I just had a big inner brain discussion with a few months ago was one of the most archaic systems on the planet to this day has got to be the rental car industry. The fact, the amount of actual paper copies and inefficient just way of doing business car rental companies do... It's you know it. If you spend any time on the road, it's a race for the rental car uh, counters because if there's three people in front of you, it's a forty minute wait. The the time it when everything supposedly has already been filled out online. Like I'm super proactive. I'm on the apps and I've got every, and it doesn't ever seem to matter. You're still are waiting and signing papers. Have you ever done Toro? Yeah, I ha- I, I think I did once internationally. Yeah. Um, but not enough to have a so an opinion. We, we've done Toro, so a Toro is basically like the Airbnb for mm-hmm. travel cars. So mm-hmm. we, I've used it a couple times. I've like again we went to Tennessee uh, for a wedding back in uh, November, and I think my sisters had it and it was like a whole mess of getting stuff. Now mm. we've lucked out every time we've had it. It's been seamless. We walk yeah. out, they either drop it off for you or, or they're like, listen, it's in this parking spot. You grab it. The keys are 
usually in like a little lockbox thing they have on it, and you yep. jump and you go. Yep. Um, so we've had good luck with it. It's more if you got a pre-plan, right? You know, it's like an, an Airbnb. You just book it prior. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I've had a. I'm almost wondering. I would think that process, which seems pretty easy to use, provided there's not like a, a human error on like the drop off mm-hmm. or something, to be pretty f- effective. Um, the the rental cars, you always wonder. We're actually in the middle of watching uh, the uh, it's on Netflix, but uh, the Uber documentary, mm-hmm. I guess, and how they like came up with Uber. And you're starting to see. He made a good point in the movies, like so. At one point in this whole line, he's arguing with this guy, and this guy's like, "You can't do this." Blah blah blah. And he goes, he just screams out, "He's like horse shit!" And they're like, "What?" And he basically looks at him, and he's like, "Horse shit." He goes, "There used to be horse shit," and all. So basically, he started to talk about the horse and buggy back then. Then yep. he said they got rid of it. They went to this mode of transportation. Then they went to this mode. Then this one. And trolleys became right. You know, so he kind of went through all the line. He goes, basically, right now, you guys are trying to save the horse and buggy and yep. things are changing this is for uber obviously and now we know how big uber is but i'm wondering when i look at anything like that when you talk about like inefficiencies like i would think toro is just going to eliminate that at some point i don't, I don't know. know how old toro is but i don't know um although it was interesting i was in marquette michigan a few months ago for work and i actually was in line at this tiny little airport you know it's like like plattsburgh okay um and I'm in line and same thing. I'm just there to return and I'm like a gold status with whatever company I was using. And it doesn't matter because there's one young kid working the register yeah. and there's two people in front of me. And this guy starts talking to me behind me who is a real frequent business traveler. And he said, he goes, he actually knows exactly why this industry is. He said the rental car industry system-wide, and I'm no computer programmer, is basically still using some sort of antiquated software across the board. Like literally they've looked into it and the amount of money years ago, they said there was a system-wide thing to like, what is it going to cost to upgrade to a modern computerized system? And they basically said it was to, my argument was like, well, it's not going to get any cheaper the longer you wait. But he was like, it was basically, the guy was insinuating, it was like something like DOS. Like they're still running like DOS. And when, so it's it's very antiquated and stuff. And this is across all the companies? Yes, according to this guy. All the major brands were running the same system. So what's the the big, is Hertz the biggest one? Or is it Enterprise? Like I, I don't know. um, and I think they're all half co-owned now, but you know, you're probably the same. Yeah. Um, You'd have to look that up. Actually, that's interesting. No, you might be something online. I never really thought about it after the guy told it to me. But um, but the rental you know, car, rental just... car with the antiquated computer systems. Um, you know, maybe maybe something came of uh, came up. Yeah, rental software. So anyway, yeah, I, I just it, it really drives me insane. So I've tried to create as much efficiency and organization in my personal life more because it just makes me happy. I think we talked about this maybe, maybe the first, uh, uh, podcast we did, but, um, you know, it's one of my pet peeves. It's one of the things patients appreciate about coming to my office is I don't run behind schedule. No. Um, and if I am behind, I mean, you know, it's, it's usually because someone showed up late and I was too nice to kind of say, hey, we're going to have to reschedule, I, and I squeeze them in. Yeah. I mean, if I am more than five to 10 minutes behind schedule, it gives me anxiety. I get stressed out. I'm, I'm not happy. So it's. I'm trying to think. I've been. I was. So I, I think I've been seeing you once a month for like 10, 10 plus years now. Has it been that long? Yeah. yeah. And because yeah. I, I went in, it was funny because Gina. Mm-hmm. recommended that I go and we weren't together at the time. We've been together about 10 years oh, now. Wow. So okay, yeah. we uh. ended up, uh, I, I would say in the 10 years, <laughs> I don't even need a full hand account, maybe 
twice. And like you said, it was like, yeah. or, or I was late a couple minutes and just missed it. And then right, someone right, snuck right, right, in. Right. Like it yep. wasn't, I, I no, very it's rarely pretty, show up. It's and, pretty damn efficient. Yeah, and it's, it is. Uh, that's out of purpose. One, we don't overbook, mm-hmm. um, you know, which it would make sense. A lot of offices clearly do, but yep. I just don't know how some of these docs consistently are running hours behind schedule. I mean, I get stuff pops up, especially in an emergency setting like that, a primary care setting. But when you hear the same stories about the same offices over and over for years. There's a couple of local just, ones that unfortunately oh, That's what I'm, exactly that what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. More than a couple, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. And I don't know. I just couldn't live with myself. I, I would have an ulcer and a... What, what, uh, so I think you and I are very similar in a lot of things. Like When you look at, when you say like maximizing efficiency in life, is there anything that jumps out where you're like, I, here are little spots that I try to be efficient um, obviously the business aspect, I mean, like your home life, I, you know, we'll start, I'm going to take traveling out for sex. I want to dive mm-hmm. into that a bit, but anything you do day to day that like, I'm really efficient with this, um, and maybe any tactics that you use for efficiency or productivity. Oh boy. Um, I'll share a couple of mine too, which. I yeah. Really I mean, know. it's hard for me to break it down because I'm such a creature. It's funny, you know? The more you learn about yourself as you get older, I suppose. I would always like to think in my head that I hate routine. Like I, okay. that's what I like about travel is seeing new places and kind of you know new schedule and doing this and being adventurous. Yet when I actually look back at the last like twenty years of my life, it I, I absolutely thrive on a very similar daily routine, mm-hmm. and I actually get quite angry. Not even angry is too strong a word. Um, I get anxious when my routine is yeah. off or yeah. I get really bummed out easy or ticked off, I guess, uh, sometimes with family stuff. Um, like I just, I get up at the same exact time every day. Um, I, I just, I like my coffee. I like this. And I just, I guess there's there's comfort in routine. Yeah. Um, and even when I travel, my wife's similar in a lot of ways with that case. We end up with, and like a lot of couples do, you just end up, maybe your routine's a little different, but man, by the end of that vacation, we've got our routine down for that particular place we're in. You know, and so I I think it's just for me mentally, I mean, you could almost, you wouldn't be the first person to say I may be a little bit on the spectrum in certain ways in my life. Um, I think it just brings me, I won't even say pleasure, because I have a pretty high bar with that. I, I'm a pretty even Steven. I don't get too I don't get too happy or excited about things, but yeah. I and I try not to get too bummed. I try to I try to stay pretty even keel. Um, but I think that's out of necessity how I've organized my life is to be very routine and prompt and organized. Have you ever heard the quote? Um, it goes it kind of goes what you're saying. Uh, I think it's Jocko Willink that talks about discipline equals freedom. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen the books and stuff? Mm-hmm. And I you know, and obviously he puts it in a different context, yeah. but when you break it down, kind of the same thing, your discipline, which gives you the freedom, I think, in a lot of other, because yes. think about if you weren't disciplined in your day-to-day and had a routine, it probably wouldn't allot the time for you to go travel and be spontaneous. That's right. So I think there's a level of, you. Ha- I, I, I'm, I, same thing, kind of a creature of habit. I'm very particular. Yep. My wife would say that. I'm sure the girls here would say that. I'm... Um, I'm very neat. I'm very organized, a level of, you know, OCD of stuff. But I feel like a lot of the things I do serve the purpose of the short delayed gratification to have longer gratification. Mm. What I mean by that is I will take extra time to make sure I take the couple seconds to go put something back where it should go versus 
where the hell is it? I'm I'm searching for it. Where do we put the keys? Where yep. do we put this? Whatever. And I'm like, I know where it is because it's got yeah. a home. It's got a place. Yeah. I uh, and people would be like, oh, you're whatever. And I'm like, my in my brain, it's not that it bothers me that it's there. I'm, I'm using an example of let's say you have keys. If someone takes the keys and throws them on a table that you know doesn't, yeah. it's just kind of a catch-all, whatever. And we know the keys maybe go on a hook. Yep. I will grab the keys and put them on the hook, not because it annoys me where the keys are. It's because it's not there. I know I can just catch it. I'm like, my brain just is wired. Like, put it back so we know that it's there when you need it. And yep. then when the time comes, you don't think about it. And it's 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 a very big challenge, one that I'm sure family would argue I, I lose most of the time, um, is the patience with people that are not like that. Um, and not yes. even for better or worse, but it's for worse in my brain because I wouldn't be the way I am if I thought there was a better way. Yeah. You know, I, I, so even as much as like, I have my spot on the couch yep, and it's on the one end because it's where my computer's plugged in yep. and I can, my phone charger's there and my little blue light I sometimes use in the morning to plug in, like in the middle of winter. Um, the first few minutes, if I'm playing like <laughs> Wordle or something, um, and it really annoys me. I know. I always know when I show up, and I'm like, "All right, who's first of all? Whose charger is this? This isn't." You know, I, and I, I like to like. I, I'm joking, not joking. Is I go. I honestly, guys, I have like six square feet of this house. This is my. The, my reading lamp is right there. Everything is set up exactly where I like it, and I go just try not to mess with this one corner if are, it can be. Are, are you? Would you consider yourself a minimalist? Oh, a hundred percent. Okay, I would think you would be, yes. but then some people I know like collect stuff, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm always less is more. I like clean lines. I like mm-hmm. less. Like there's a reason there's nothing on the walls here, and and this actually, I, eventually, I know I've been saying this for a while. Just life, it's been hard. The table is in the process of being made, and this will be much cl- more cleaned up. Yeah. So like the legs are there. So even with this little bit of stuff back there, I'm still yep. like, God, it just doesn't look like it should, but. I, Everything is very clean. Like I know, like you can look at the way I pattern these. Like yep. the, this is the same height as that, and it's like it's minimal stuff. But I just like the attention, the detail. Yeah, I mean, the only it's, thing I have, I guess you might say, collect is is kind of some of my gear. Mm-hmm. So you know, but even that I've trimmed down. Like I've got a couple of bikes now, bicycles. You know, yep. a mountain bike and a fat tire bike. That's all I have. I, I used to have four or five different stupid bikes. You know, <laughs> um, I've, I've got. Excuse me. I've got, you know, a couple, three or four pairs of skis, but again, they all do different things. It's not like I have four pairs of skis to go to whiteface. Um, but that would be the most, I mean, it's, it's, you've seen my desk. It's an Ikea desk with no drawers. Yep. It's literally a plank and I have uh, some sort of, uh, it's got a laptop and a little radio and, no, not even on my desk. Oh, it's not on your desk? No. Wherever it plays music, yeah. Yeah, that's over on the bookshelf. But yeah, very minimalist. I absolutely hate clutter with a passion. Yeah. And just like you said, it just it gives my mind less things to think about. Well, that's one of them. And the other thing, too, and I got this from – I didn't do this because of this guy. But I, I, when I started realizing, I'm like, I, I kind of do it for the same reason. Steve Jobs wore the same thing every single day. Yeah. That was like – he was very famous for that. Yeah. And so it, it was wasn't Obama was known. Was for, the same thing? Yeah. Well, he had some paraphrasing, but he had some quote. You know, it's just one last decision he has to make every yeah. day. There, were, everyone is a charcoal suit, and it was based with a white shirt. Yeah. And well, I started doing that, so I wear 
I have a couple of the same pants and a couple of the same shirts. Mm-hmm. Same, like same stuff. There are literally about two of them because they fit. I liked them and I just rotate them every single day. So my, for me to pick out an outfit every day, it is very, mm-hmm. takes almost no time. But I think it came back to the decision fatigue where I'm like, I just don't want to think about it. And that's why I eat the same thing for breakfast. That's why yep. like, it's just a creature of habit. But part of me is. It's like, I just don't want to have to think until I have to think. And I'm also sa- like saving that energy bubble. Yeah. So I have something a little different is that in the winter and fall, I usually wear what I have on now. Yep. Um, like khakis. At, I'm talking about work now. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, sweater vest. Not yep. sweater vest. I'm sorry. V-neck sweater and some, you know, dress pants. Mm-hmm. And I have them folded in a closet and I might have seven or, seven or eight that I rotate through. Yeah. Um, but... When I put it, it goes on top. So I always know I'm pulling from the bottom. So there's no thinking. So I basically wear 95% of the time. It's going to be, you're going to see me on the same day. Yeah. I'll have the same sweater on. Uh, I have like seven or eight of them that I rotate, but I stuck them. And then in the summer, I like golf shirts and same thing. They just go, it goes back on the left. And so I pull from the right. And so yeah, it's very crazy. It's Um, all of it. But I have found I, my life runs better when I have a very strict habit yeah. that I stick with. So for instance, um, I had a run that ended, the only thing that stopped it was probably the one of the worst fake cases of food poisoning I've ever had in, in Rio um, back in like, actually I'll tell you exactly when it was because it was like the week before COVID hit. Um, it would have been like okay. middle, third week of February or something. Um, I had a workout streak uh, working out every single day. And I think it was almost, I think it was around seven years. I didn't miss a day of working out. And wow. I have never been, even though I was in my forties for most of that streak, early forties, I've never been fitter, leaner in better shape yeah. than I was during that. The minute that streak broke and I tried, um, I tried the day and I just was, I, I, yeah, it was bad. Um, the streak broke and ever since then, so for the last, and part of that had to do with COVID, like everybody yeah. just getting those first, that first summer in particular, just eating and drinking too much and yeah. sitting around too much and nothing open. And, but I got out of the habit. And yeah. so I still worked out, I would say more than 90% of people, but I would get lazy where I'd go a couple of days and not work out. And so this was, you know, and I've done the same thing over the years with diet stuff. Like I, I usually, when I was coming after grad school, I started challenging myself, like just like a lot of people, but with resolutions for New Year, I would yeah. just pick something I don't need to be eating yeah. and try to give it up for the year. And so one time it was French fries. Okay. And nothing, no, no fried, you know, and, and I don't eat onion rings. So it was French fries. And for me, they're okay, but I just eat them out of habit because yeah. they come with so many things. Yep. I did the year, ended up going like five or six years. I didn't have a fry. And so I kind of thrive. Cold showers were another thing. Okay. I, you know, the, the purported benefits to be determined. You know, I, there's some interesting stuff with possible immunity advantages. I do it totally just because it sucks. And it's a really good mental check. Yep. Um, I think there is something to kind of ambient temperature as well. Like I think every, not, nothing, that, that cold bathroom does not feel cold after you've done a minute plus of ice water. Uh, to to finish a shower, and I had just along the same run with the workout streak I had. I had like a five year streak where I did at least I finished one shower every day on ice water, um, at the, you know the coldest setting. Yeah, 
And again, it was just, it's the same as making your bed first thing in the morning. It's just a mental win. And I'm not that. Thank God my wife is more obsessed with the bed than I am. Um, See, I would think you'd make the bed. No. I make no. the, I've made my bed every day since a kid. Yeah, no, well, and she Always beats have. me to it, to be honest. Yeah. Maybe I would. I've been not gone. Yeah, she's she's great, so I, I never really have to worry about it. Um, and she's got her own little things like that. But yeah, it's just I think more people would be better just setting a low bar, yeah, but a consistent bar. Um, that's it. It's showing up, you know, day after day after day. You don't have to be killing it every day. Just showing up. I mean, look at my career even. I mean, it's hard to believe this is the start of my 24th year yeah. uh, of practice. Um, it's one of my, and this could might open up a thing of worms here, but uh, it's probably my most proud work accomplishment, and people don't believe me. Twenty, so I finished 23 years was the end of December. So that's my start of my 24th year. I have never, ever missed a day of work in 24 years. Not oh. a single day. I don't get sick, knock on wood. Yeah. Somehow, I've never had COVID. Been in my house six times. Wow. Six separate times. I've never tested positive. If I've had it, I didn't have a sniffle or anything, but I've tested what, a, a ton. What do you What do you think that attributes to? I don't know. Okay. Um, I think clearly I'm lucky enough to have an above-average immune system. Yeah. Because I honestly don't even remember the last time I had like a stuffy nose. Wow. Um, I remember the last time I was truly sick and it was some sort of a, you know, flu or whatever. It was 1997. And I was just talking about this with someone. The only, I was in grad school. I was in chiropractic school in Minnesota. And it was the NFC championship game. The year the Vikings played the Falcons. You remember that? You're probably too young to remember the Icky, 97? Sh- icky Shuffle. Might've been 98. Oh God, I remember. Um, Might've been the winter of 98. 97, it was fun, 98. It was a championship game? But they lost at home. The Vikings had a chance to go to the Super Bowl, and they lost to the, okay. the Falcons and uh, at home. Anyway, long story short, a bunch of us college buddies were going to try to tailgate. It was a, it was like a noon game. So we were okay. up 20 below. We're up at 8 in the morning. In, uh, January? I just remember, too, you know, when you're that age, swinging into whatever liquor stores open on a Sunday at 8 in the morning. And... Find, you know, we, we're thinking we're tailgating and we're going to try to get some scalp tickets and the nosebleeds. And I just remember drinking like, I remember exactly what it was. It was blackberry brandy Ugh. mixed with Mountain Dew. Uh, o to B 20 again. And standing outside for hours in the cold drinking that and we oh, never God. could get tickets. And I remember going back home and I fell asleep for a bit, woke up and I was just like pooped warm, warmed over. Um that's the last time I've really been sick. And I, it was just basically a bad cold for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, Probably self-inflicted, standing outside. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. And, you know, living the college lifestyle, yeah, yeah. too. You know, up late and partying and whooping it up. But um, So I have a big immune, but I have two things I've come to actually answer your question. Number one, and one of them, half your audience or more might think I'm crazy, but um, they might all think I'm crazy, actually. Um, but the two big things... And I get no evidence, so don't, you know, I'm not going to, you can tell me, you know, I'm going to bro science it up here or anything, but <laughs> um, I, my biggest bad habit my entire life since I was a little, little kid was I'm a pretty bad fingernail chewer. Okay. COVID was the first time I actually used a pair of nail clippers in my life. Like I gave up chewing my nails when COVID hit just out of just sanitary, you know, whatever, Um 
and I've probably, I've kind of slipped back again into what if I'm watching TV or nervous or something about, you know, preoccupied, I'll find myself chewing my nails or picking okay. my nails more so now. Okay. I think there is something to be said for slow dripping germs from like two years old on with my fingers constantly okay. in my mouth. That's one do, of my theories. I don't know if there's any immunology. Do you get a canker sores or anything? No, never. That's Nothing. Wild. I had I've had two really bad ones this year to the no. point where I had to get like medication. To... Never had one, not that I ever remember. Wow. Um, so nothing. Um, it's it's, but I think there's something to that. And you look today, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with allergies, but something's going on. You know, my wife's a school nurse. She she sees all this stuff. I yeah. I'm not that old. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm not even fifty yet, and. I don't remember a single kid in school having a deathly peanut allergy or, or no, any kind of allergy. I, I don't either. There certainly were no separate tables. There were certainly never, and that's in like the eighties. When, when you did, know, when, yeah. When did food allergies? I don't know. I don't know because I feel like they've become like. And again, I know people have had celiacs longer too, but like the idea of celiacs, gluten, dairy, right. all this stuff, like it's really. I mean, I don't remember it in high school. No. And that was 15 years ago, so no, I feel and, like it's... And, and if you trace it back, and again, I'm not going to go down this the rabbit hole because it's, it's controversial and no one really knows with 100% certainty and you know nutrition and stuff in foods and chemicals and all this. It's probably multifactorial like everything is. Everything's complicated, right? Um, but it, it definitely wasn't around yeah, um, back then. I remember and it wasn't the, the 40s here. We're talking about like the 80s and early 90s. I mean, I was 2000s. I yeah. don't remember it at all. No. And so, um, but what the, if you lumped all of those in under one umbrella, there's certainly some sort of an autoimmune problem. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. If you look at the peanut stuff and the gluten and the celiac and all this stuff, it all falls under some sort of thing where your body is attacking itself um, inappropriately. Now, why that is, who knows? But mm -hmm. so that's that's theory one of why I've been lucky enough to never never get sick. Okay. Um, and number two, and and the science is actually starting to back me up a little bit on this, with the connection and Huberman. Did you, are you a Huberman yeah. guy? You I, listen I, to him time to time. A, like a I do. little bit more now than I have yeah. ever have. But I yeah, agree. Still and he, into again, him. he, he sometimes very dense for me too because he's he's a he, smart dude. He does. Um, it, my and one of my negatives with him is I I wish he wouldn't go down that bro science. Yeah. Sometimes he does with with little evidence. I think he overplays some of the supplement stuff he talks content. about. Yeah. Um because he clearly is I mean a tenured guy at Stanford and you know a PhD and all this, clearly yeah. a smart dude. Um and with my background in the science, I I I like the dense yeah. of, of his, yep. but I could certainly see it being a problem. But anyway, you know he's talked about this a couple times with some of his guests is this more and more research pouring out with the the connection between the brain and immunity. You I, know, I, that I actually wrote down neurological to skeletal muscle because yes. there's another question I had after, but yeah, speak on this first. So, so it's just, it's finally, science is finally starting to catch up and it's not just immunology, it's everything that the brain is driving everything in the body. And we used to like to say, Everything was just categorized. You know, you have your muscles, you have your immune system, you've got your endocrine system, you've got your butt, uh, your uh, gut biome, and your your you know gut health and all this. And now there's just a neural neurology link and a brain link to all of them, and they're all interconnected. And so my thing for a lot of years has been mentally overcoming 
potential illness. Now, that sounds really woo-woo and weird, but let me just make it really mm-hmm. simple for you. So, for instance, what have almost everybody do? You wake up one morning. You wake up tomorrow morning. Yep. And you're, you're not even out of bed yet, but you're maybe a little stuffy or you swallow and your throat's a little bit sore or tickly. What is literally the first thought that passes through? I'm sick. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, great. Here we go. I can't afford. I got a big Coming meeting. Down with I've got the kids yeah. are going to get sick. I get, I can't, we're going on a trip in, uh, in this weekend. It's always the first thought that passed through your head. And it's just a historically, I always thought it was just a mind matter kind of thing. Yeah. But it, the science is starting to prove there's some link there. And you have to believe it. Just thinking the thoughts and then saying, oh, I didn't mean that. I don't count. So I truly believe, and I'm, I've been thinking, you know, for 20, probably 20 plus years, is if I wake up and I feel a little bit off, it's I do not even let that thought pass. It's just an excuse. Ah, I must have slept with my mouth open, or I'm just thirsty, uh, or just I, I must have slept on my side or something, and then I'm fine. You know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I never let that thought of being sick be sick. Now, in 20-something years of private practice, I've seen thousands of patients. And for better or worse, um, you know, you get to see a lot of different personalities in private Mm one-on-one. And we all know those people in our lives that are the opposite of that, that are constantly sick. Mm -hmm. And there tends to be a common theme with a lot of them is it's self-perpetuating. You know what I mean? Like you get sick once or twice, and then you suddenly are becoming this expected to get sick kind of personality. And I think there's something to that. I, you're not the, it's not the first time I've heard that. Mm. And I've heard other people say like, I don't get sick. And when you said that, I'm like, I've heard people say that, you know, this is people I know. These are people I've might've heard in an interview or whatever. And they typically follow up with that. It's like, I just tell myself I'm not sick. Right. But, but it's the same thing. Believe it. Like, like you said, whatever that hits, it's one of those where it's just like, I'm not sick. Yeah. Like, it's excuse. It and, is. Yeah. Su- and there's people that, of course, you that say that and you can tell immediately D- that they're horribly sick as yeah. they're saying that to you. Yeah. But most you of know? these people are like you saying yeah, yeah, to me yeah. right now. They're like, yeah. I, I just don't get sick because I just don't believe I'm ever sick. And yeah, but they say the same thing. And they've like, I there's one example of a guy. I remember saying this in an interview and he said the same thing. And he was he said, I'd never get sick. But it was probably the same thing. Twenty something years of never mm-hmm. getting sick. And he's like, I just. He goes, when it happens or if I don't feel good, I just talk myself out of it. Yeah. I just get on yeah. with my day and I'm fine. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I know that sounds wacky to a lot of people. And I'm not saying, obviously, you know, if you had cancer or, you know, God forbid something like that, that you, you outthink yeah. that. But I'm just talking in general for most of the little bugs. You think 99% of the population. Exactly. Is, is I, think a, I think there is something to um, a, a positive outcome. Do, and, you know, living life too. I mean, I also... All that stuff I said, chewing my nails and and thinking positively about not getting sick is one thing, but I I also like to think I take care of myself. I work out most days. You get outside. I eat right 90% of the time. I get out quite a bit. I'm outside every day, at least a little bit. Um, So there's something obviously to that as well. Um, I was going to say with, because you see it a lot with uh, exercising too, when someone says like, I can't exercise today because I am too sore or I, I don't feel good enough to exercise. Yeah. And... I'll be honest. I'm, I'm not that strong-willed. Where I, I force. I've done it a couple times, but people that are, you know, I'm gonna force myself when I'm sick to work out, or when I'm hungover, I'm gonna go work yep. out, or whether yep. I'm one of those people. If I don't feel good, I don't work yep. out. I probably should, but at most people that have said that that that's what they do, 
typically say once you start working out, mm-hmm. whatever feeling, soreness or sickness or whatever goes away and you're right into it. Yeah. And then usually you come out on the other side and you're like, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, so again, I, have you ever done that before? Yeah. Just kind of like, cause you said obviously seven years of, but. Yeah, I mean, I probably in seven years, you know, woke up a little stuffy or something. I don't recall, but yeah, um, yeah I don't think, I think, in fact, we may have talked about this last time, but I, I think one of the biggest mistakes, just general mistakes people make, and I see it week in and week out of my office with exercise in general, mm-hmm. is working out too intensely too often. Especially if you're just starting. Well, period, yeah. though. I mean, for anybody. I mean, I can look at, at very elite, um, you know, age group athletes that just feel like if they're not really hitting it hard, it doesn't really count mm-hmm. and don't take nearly enough real easy recovery days. Um, you know, all of their workouts are at that kind of moderately hard to hard level and you can't get away with it forever, particularly as you get older. What, uh, I was going to say for, for you now, you know, with what you've seen, obviously experienced it at, at your age, like what... Um, what do you think is a good balance or what would you say? Like, Hey, if you're in a, let's say a month or, or, uh, a week, a month or a year, however you want to say it, like what yeah. percentage of the time do you think could be at kind of a harder day where you're like, I feel like I'm pushing myself today versus a recovery day versus maybe just something that's kind of baseline maintenance. Okay. Now you're opening up a can of worms. I knew you could. This to- is, I mean, we could do, we could do 20 hours on this and, and not even scratch the surface, but let me see if I can break it down easiest for you. So. Number one, in a way, because this has become my new obsession, is longevity. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of deep diving with just how to kind of optimize longevity and uh, my visits to this island in Greece, you know, one of the blue zones the last yeah. three yep. summers. I've, just, I've had this a bit of an obsession with this. Um, and not the junk stuff out there. There's plenty of podcasters that are spewing a lot of information that's a little over the top. Um, but what do we know? Um, number one, it depends on your goal. Are you a 20 or 25 year old guy or girl? Um, and maybe you're just trying to maximize, you don't give a crap about longevity or heart health at mm-hmm. your age. You're invincible, right? Quote unquote. And maybe maximize you want to look good naked. That's yep. the phrase everybody says lean body mass, mm-hmm. minimize body fat. That workout routine is going to look a lot different than someone who's 55, has three kids, mm-hmm. um, full time job and is more looking to maximize health and well-being, right? Heart health, longevity, things like that. Um, you know, for the, 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 the younger person that's looking to get lean, you know, that's going to be a lot more resistance training heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know for a fact that one of the best predictors of lifespan is VO2 max. Okay. So you've heard that phrase before, yep. which is is thrown around, but it's basically what's the maximal volume of oxygen that you can move in and out of your body. So, so you see them running with the mass on Exactly. It. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, yeah. yes. Um, and they're looking at, you know, c- amount of CO2 you're blowing off when you exhale, oxygen in, um, and they check a bunch of different stuff as well. But VO2 is directly correlated with longevity. The higher your VO2 max... Okay the longer you tend to live. And so there are a couple kind of you know, much smarter people than me in this field that I follow. And I just, one of the guys tweeted or X'd or whatever you're calling it now, <laughs> tweet um, a few days ago that said, I'm trying to think about exactly how he phrased that, but it was something like it should be, he basically was stressing that it doesn't take a whole lot of time 
to maintain muscle mass, especially as you age. Yeah. But you need a lot of time in low level aerobic exercise to maintain VO2. Which is zone one and two? Yeah. Okay. Mainly. Okay. Now you can do hard occasionally, very rarely, mm-hmm. but the way to increase VO2 is a unfortunately a lot of time spent in a low level aerobic state where your heart is working slightly harder than normal, mm-hmm. but for extended, like several hours per week. Um, okay, gotcha. So, so like a normal day, maybe some we're closer to an hour, forty-five minutes to an hour, or longer, or long. Okay, yeah, or longer. I um, mean, you know, I've seen it all over the board, but someone, you know, some of these guys I read is, you know, saying as much as you know seven to ten hours a week in zone one or two to maximize kind of VO two. Now you're going to lose VO two as you age naturally, mm-hmm. like everything. You know, your your lean muscle goes down, your muscle size goes down, testosterone drops, um, but VO two. Um, the better you can preserve that seems to be linked with longevity. Um, and it's, it's difficult to change. It just is like now, it, just to give you some numbers. Yeah. Um, so my VO two, and again, I just use my stupid Garmin, mm-hmm. which gives me a rough estimate. I haven't been on a treadmill, like officially tested, but I think it, it's probably close enough for yeah. our purposes. Depending in the last year or two, mine will go, it's usually in the upper forties to about 50. Okay. Which according to, depending on whatever research, is certainly better than the vast majority of 49 what, or What's the typical range of VO2? So if you took an average 40 or 50-year-old person, yeah. let's just say guy, guys are going to be a little higher than women considering okay. just you know, bigger bigger size on mm-hmm. average. Um, and you, you know the obesity rate. Yeah. I would be willing to bet an average 40-something-year-old guy in the U.S. is VO2 is probably in the 20s, maybe 30. Okay, then, remember mine was pushing, you know. So you're probably double. And I'm not even some freaky aerobic athlete. Yeah. You know, I was a sprinter decathlete through college, so I was always more of a sprinter jumper. So it's not like I'm one of these gifted, you know, Tour de France guys. Yeah. Now, you get the elite, so the highest VO2 numbers ever recorded tend to be in cross-country skiers. Okay. Um, there's some outliers as well. There's been a few cyclists. Um, there was a, a, a guy who run, won the Pikes Peak Marathon like 12 times back in the <laughs> 90s. Um, but the, the highest ever recorded is usually in the low 90s, which is wow. obscenely high. Wow. Yeah. I'm talking about not even a one-tenth of 1%. I'm talking about a millionth. You know, I mean, Armstrong's at his peak when Lance was winning, you know, Tour de France. And again, pharma, pharmacology aside. Yeah. Um, you know, he was probably in the mid to upper 80s, I think I've read. Um, so it's, it's a huge swing. What are those? What? So let's take someone that's up at that level. What do they experience? Like, what would they experience is different than us? Like ability to work out longer, ability to just breathe clearer. Like what's the, what's the benefit of having the VO2, like how it translates to like a feeling someone might actually have. That's a hard question. And I always think like, I mean, we talk about this when I go in and I'm like, ah, I'm like, I'm on a streak of stretching or like I haven't stretched in a long time. And I feel like, like right now I feel like absolutely stiffer than a board but when i'm stretching i typically like get up in the morning with no issue i don't feel stiff everything moves just i feel just everything feels more like lubricated and feels a little bit more like jelly which feels awesome 
But VL2, like again, my my knowledge of VL2 is very low. I, I kind of understood what it was, but I don't. So performance is is really complicated and multifactorial. You have things mm-hmm. just to even keep it simple. You have the VO2 max. You yep. have something called what, what is your lactate threshold, yep. right? Um, and then just everything, even down to like perceived effort, right? Like at a scale of zero to ten or zero to twenty, you know, that just some people can suffer much longer and much harder than other people can suffer. You and that know? would be more mental than... Yeah, 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 physical. exactly. Yep. So it's, it's wide-ranging. Okay. I've heard the analogy used that VO2 is the size of the glass. So the bigger okay. the number, the bigger the glass. If you think of a fitness level, aerobic fitness, okay. that the VO2 gives you a higher bar. Now, okay. it doesn't matter. You could have a really high VO2, but if you're poor in some of these other factors you know your lactate threshold is quite low um blah 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 you might not be a top performer just with a high vo2 in and of itself but what getting back to that my point was we do seem to it it seems to be pointing that if the higher you can get your vo2 the better your chance of living long that seems to be correlated so i think People hear a lot, rightfully so, that as you age, you're getting into your 40s, 50s, 60s, and up, that muscle mass is is one of the things you lose the fastest, and it absolutely can be. But I'm going to counter that with you can maintain or even gain muscle mass in as little as like 30 to maybe 60 or 90 minutes a week of strength training. Yeah. Like literally a couple of sessions of 30 to 45 minutes is enough. Think about how many people lift when they're younger and right. when they're older, it still looks like they lift and they haven't lifted in 20 exactly. years. They just can keep some yeah, kind well, of level. Yeah, even myself, mu- like I still have a little bit more muscle mass, even yes. though I haven't lifted much in like seven years. No, so. and that, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I have just mentally, since COVID hit, you know, one, the gyms were closed for a while, mm-hmm. got out of the habit. And I was never a huge lifter, but I I used to like going in three days a week and then I do something aerobic the other four. Mm-hmm. And I just get out of the habit. And I've, I've really been struggling since mentally just because I, I like being outside. Yeah. Like, today i could have easily probably should have gone up could have afforded to go to the gym hit the weights for 45 minutes to an hour but i'm like do i want to go in a stinky gym or do i want to go throw the skis in the back and be out in the woods yeah and so now perfect world i think if i could get in twice a week and do some real intense strength training Mm -hmm. and then the other five days a week doing some lower level long aerobic type activity, that's probably the best of both worlds. So the point being, it does take time to maintain or to grow and increase your VO2. Um, But it doesn't have to be, it shouldn't, in fact, be hard. And that's the big thing with these people is they feel, and it's great for my business because they're hurt constantly. Yeah. But you get these people that are oftentimes severely overweight, Mm-hmm. This time of year in particular, right? They're, the resolutions come out, they're at the gym, or they feel like they need to run, right? There mm-hmm. couldn't be a worse sport for someone who's carrying extra weight than running. Yeah. It's just there's in normal recreational runners that you would think most of them not obese are somewhere in the ballpark of 80% injury rate in a calendar year. So even the people that are used to running are getting hurt at obscene rates. And so now try doing that with an extra 50 to 100 pounds on your body. Mm-hmm. You don't stand a chance. And the thing is, it doesn't take much to get the heart rate up. And the irony is when you're carrying a bunch of extra weight and Starting. you haven't worked out or you haven't worked out in years, you, you don't have to do very much. A fast walk 
or getting on the stationary bike or standing on the elliptical is enough to get that heart rate up well up into zone one or two, and you don't need to be killing it and mm-hmm. killing yourself more so. Is zone one and two, that's relative to the person too? Yes. Yeah, so like it, a fitter person can push it more and would still be in the same zone relative to their... Okay. So this is where it gets interesting. Okay. Yes. So just, and again, I know I'm very oversimplifying, but this is enough to at least give your listeners an idea of what we're talking about. You have to know what your rough max heart rate is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the old thing we always learned growing up is the 220 minus your age. Yep. It's a horribly inaccurate, but it gets you, even if you just wanted to use that just to get, I mean, you might be off 10 beats a minute, um, but who knows? But okay. max heart rate decreases with age. That's why that formula doesn't work. Oh, that's why work. it works. Work. I mean, yes. it's 220 minus your age. So a 20-year-old max heart rate is going to be in the ballpark of 200. Now, I always just, for whatever reason, genetically just always ran a little high. Mm-hmm. So when I last tested my max heart rate, which is often done in a race, like okay. if you do a 5K or a 10K, take a look at the last like 15, 20, 30 minutes of that race, as hard as you could possibly go, yep. that average is probably going to be close to your max. Um, you know, whatever you're hitting as you come across the finish line. Um, so even in my thirties, I was pushing 200 for running. And and that's the other thing, cycling max heart rates, a little different than your running max heart rate and skiing max heart rate. Um, but even if you want to just take the 220 minus age, um, another one you hear is 205 minus half your age, just 220 minus your age, roughly and this even varies a little depending on the resource, but zone one and zone two. Now that's assuming a five zone system. Okay. Okay. One being the easiest, you know, barely above rest, five being all out close to your max heart rate, you know, 95 plus percent of your max heart rate. Zone one is going to be around 55 to 65% of your maximum heart rate. Okay. So if you're 220, let's say you're a 40 year old, you're at roughly a ballpark of 180 would be your max heart rate. Yep. So 50% of 180 is 90. Mm-hmm. So you figure you're talking probably in that 100 to 130, 120 range would be zone one and two. So this might be like a, a brisk walk. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're out of shape or yeah. obese or both. Right. Yep. I mean, they might hit that going up the stairs. Yeah, to the true. second floor. Yeah, you're right. Uh, depending on how how out of shape they are, you know, yeah. and there's no, it, it just is what it is. Yep. And so, if you, and this is what I've been doing for years because it's one of the big problems is people go out and feel like they have to beat themselves up working out, and they're sweating and they're breathing hard, and wonder why they're hurt after the first three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, is if you can roughly ballpark what is the top end of your zone two. So if you want to say 70 to 75% of your max heart rate, let's just say I'd even err on the low end, say 70% okay. of whatever your 220 minus your age, 70% of that number, you should never get over that. So that ends up being what, 240? No, no, no. So, or sorry, 140, I mean? Uh, I don't know. 70% of, of, if it's one, if figure 40 year old, 10%. the max heart rate's 180. Uh, that's 18 is 10%. So you're talking, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, so 120. You're talking, yeah, 120 something. Yeah. Is the hardest your heart should be working to stay in zone one or two. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. I was going to say, because that's less intensity than you think. Way less. Yeah. 
And so what I've been doing personally, I have my little Garmin watch that I do everything with. Mm -hmm. I have it, if I'm hiking, if I'm backcountry skiing, if I'm doing any of that stuff, aerobically biking, I have it set. I know my top of my zone two is around 143. Okay. Okay. It's a little higher than them, but I've tested it. Okay. So I have an alarm that starts beeping when I hit 143. To tell you to slow down I or, stop. or intensity. Yeah, I just stop. If I'm hiking up a mountain and it starts beeping, I look down, I'm at 148. I stop for 30 seconds, a minute, let my heart rate drop down into like the 120s, and then I'll start wow. up again. And it's very hard for me because I'm used to pushing it. But what yeah. was eye-opening when people start, and I've trained a lot of people over the years with this approach, it's boring. It's 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 slow at first. It's a little frustrating for people. Um is that they find it ultimately quite enjoyable that they're now finishing a workout. They're going out for an hour on their bike or they're doing an hour on the elliptical and they feel better when they finish than when they started. Yeah. They're not dying. They're not limping around the next day because they're so beat up and the injury rate plummets. And and the frequency of working out increases. You can do that, yes. You can do that day in and day out. I'd mix up the activities. I wouldn't do the same activity, obviously. But this is what gets frustrating, particularly with runners. I treat a ton of runners. Mm-hmm. And they're stubborn as a population. They're hard-headed and they're um, you know, very habit-driven, most distance runners. Yep. And the problem they don't want to hear is that for a lot of quote-unquote fit age group people that have been running for years but have never developed this aerobic base, Yep is that to stay in zone one and two for them is going to involve a lot of walking. <laughs> so a lot of walking. Yeah. So a lot of these people, it's kind of like just banging their head into the wall yes. because it's, it's lack of knowledge. Cause I, again, I, I look at, I, I think you can kind of break down most people that work out into runners, CrossFit variation, mm-hmm. and then probably your bodybuilders kind of guys that yeah. just do mostly lifting physique. Yeah. Yeah. Physique. So like when you look at all of them that are all different, each of them have a level of, especially if it's someone that goes a lot, they kind of build that tolerance up and then you do get a baseline. But I do think there's, for all of them, there's a mixture of habit. There's a mixture of um, ego and there's a mixture of, uh, what do you want to call it? Like like routine, but mm-hmm. routine of, I don't want to not do it. Because right. people, people almost like get into a sickness, like mentally, like yes. I, I got to work out. I got to do this, I got to do that. Yep. And and don't, uh, well, don't get me wrong, though, too, because you could still be a very high-performing person. Mm-hmm. You could have gone out, and I did my three-hour and 30-minute marathon or sub-330 age group. Or, did it, or look at me you know, years ago, but doing a few different uh, Lake Placid Ironmans, mm-hmm. um, never having spent an, any time training that aerobic base. I was able to fake it. but the, And it's not that you can't do a, a, a really high performance with it. It's what is it doing to your body, number one? Are you breaking yourself down because the effort level is so high every time? Mm-hmm. And or <laughs> are you just really limiting your ultimate potential by not developing that aerobic base? So let me give you, a, can I give you yeah. a little yeah. analogy? Because yep. this will make sense. Yeah. So the first thing I do when I train people, um, I, I haven't had much time lately, but I'm looking to kind of maybe grow that side of things again. Okay. We can talk at the end. but. Yeah. Um, is basically I require a several month commitment because I go, this isn't going to change overnight and you're not going to like me and you're going to think it's boring 
because I'm going to have you, you know, you have been running and want to improve your marathon. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you're finding to stay in the right heart rate zone. You're having to walk for a minute every two or three minutes just to keep your heart rate low. That's frustrating. Yeah. So this is what I have people do is once we have your, the top of your zone two, the hardest you should be working to stay in zone two, right? Let's just use a number. Let's just say one, 140 beats a minute. Okay. doesn't matter. Whatever it is. 140. You go to a track. I'm going to have you go to a track. So that it's a flat, no hills, a set distance. And I am going to have you complete two or three. doesn't matter as long as you're consistent. Let's just say you're going to go three miles as fast as you can do it but never letting your heart rate go higher than 140 or whatever the top of your zone two is. So you can start running. The minute you hit 141, you're walking until it drops below it. Then you can run. So it's this crazy mix of short jogs and then power walking. And what you do is you finish that three miles, you write the time and what your average heart rate was. So let's just say by the time it was all said and done, your average was 137. And let's say it took that three miles, shockingly to you, since you've run a three-hour and 40-minute marathon, it took you 12-minute miles, okay? Let's say it took you 36 minutes to do three miles with your heart rate under 140. Okay. That shows you the complete lack of true aerobic base that you have not developed because your heart rate immediately is in zone three and four when you quote unquote are going out for an easy run, yep. your heart rate is, is elevated. Now this is where it gets interesting. So you've done that initial test. You did three miles. Your average heart rate was 137, 138, and it took you 36 minutes to finish those three miles, keeping your heart rate under 140. Now you start doing five, six, seven days a week mm -hmm. of this zone one, zone two training, whether it's walking, elliptical, walk, jog, whatever it is, but you can't get that heart rate over. You take a month, two months, three months of developing this aerobic base, as frustrating as that is, mm -hmm. we then go and retest. This is the number. So now you're gonna do the same three miles, keeping your heart rate as close to 140 as you can without going over. You do that this time. You finish your three miles three months after the initial test. Heart rate's still the same. Let's say it's 137, 138 was your average, but now you did it in 27 minutes. You've now cut nine minutes off your running time at the same effort. That's the key. Do you follow? Gotcha. My heart, heart rate is effort. Right? The yep. lower your heart rate, the easier the effort. Again, it's simplifying, yeah, yeah. but in general. Um, so at the same effort, which is a zone two effort for you, easy, mm -hmm. comfortably easy, you have now run the same distance significantly faster. That's how these crazy freak, uh, you know, uh, mainly Kenyan and East African marathoners, you know, Kipchoge, Kipchoge yep. these guys pushing too flat for a marathon. That's four hours and... 37, I'm sorry, four hours, four minutes. four minutes and 37 mile pace, 437 pace for 26 miles. Okay. Wrap your head around that. Yeah. How, how do you even do that? Because these, the aerobic bases these people have that he can run a sub five minute mile for two hours yep. and his heart rate might only be at like 160 something. Do you see what I'm saying? Gotcha. That's the beauty so of him zone two. Increasing it, his 
effort, even his though it looks fast to us, is not hard to him. Exactly right. His gotcha. speed continues wow, okay. to grow at the same effort. Because if you're going for two hours, wow. you can't be in zone five for two hours. Yeah. You can't. Okay. By definition, you can't. Yeah. A few minutes at most. And so to go there, these guys have to be running 440 miles in zone three or four to go for two hours straight. Wow. Okay. So, so his so, so what would his practice be? Well, it's all relative. So so this is the thing. So the East Africans are notorious for people. There's there's articles, there's books written about this where where like North American guys go over and train with the Kenyans in, yeah. you know, Iten, I think it's I-T-E-N is the town, the kind of the famous running town with the clay tracks and all this. And they go out for like their easy run, which might be in the morning, it might be in their afternoon, and they might do two runs a day, but their or their Sunday run. And it's laughable. These guys that are capable of running 205 marathons are shuffling along for an hour and a half at, at like nine minute pace. You know what I mean? So their easy so runs are ridiculously easy. So again, I apologize if we talked about this first time. I used to write a monthly article no, you, in the press. About this, yeah. Okay. I used to write this article running the running doc, we used to call it, and just running based injury stuff usually. By far the most common and on article I wrote I wrote was something called the 80-20 rule. Okay. Yes. So there was a famous study done several years ago by an American named Steven Seiler, S, I think it's S-E-I-L-E-R, Seiler, I think is how he pronounces it, who now lives in Norway, I believe. And he basically looked at the five major endurance sports in the world, okay? That's distance running, okay. it's distance road cycling, Tour de France, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's rowing, okay. it's cross-country skiing, and it's, um, what I say, running, road cycling, rowing, rowing. oh, swimming. Oh, yeah. Distance okay. swimming. So kind of the big five of, of longer aerobic sports that have been around a long, long time. And what he wanted to do is he looked at several, I think it was several hundred from multiple countries, Olympic team level performers. So he wasn't looking at you and I. He was looking at various people that were Olympic quality type runners and all or athletes in all the different sports. And he looked at training logs. He looked he I think he went back close to 10 years of training, 8 or 10 years. Looked at coaches books, the Garmin, all their workout files, their heart rate data, everything, and he put it all into a computer and he wanted to find out what do the elite of the elite in the endurance sports, how are they training? And using the same five-zone aerobic system, one being the easiest, zone five being basically topping out at max heart rate, mm -hmm. what do you think the amount... Now, again, it changed depending on the time of year a little bit, if it was an Olympic year versus the year after the Olympics. But if you averaged out an average training year of all of these athletes of five different endurance sports, what percentage of their training time in an average year was spent in zone one and two? I mean, I would think it, yeah, because you said distance is really, it, 75, 80? A little over 80. Yeah. Like 82 or 83% of all of the, every minute of their training, 
82% were in zone one or two. So you think of these high level athletes must be hitting it hard and doing these crazy track sessions and sprinting it's, it's uphill. It's the inverse of what a normal person would Yes. Yeah. And they call it the 80-20 rule. Now there's a lot of 80-20s. There's yeah. a Pareto's principle Pareto, yeah, in yeah. business and all that. But this is the 80-20 is that 80% of your training should be in zone one or two. Very, very little in zone three, which this is what my article was about, is ironically where most people do almost all their workouts. We call it no man's land. Okay. It's moderately hard, zone three. It's moderately hard. It feels like you're getting a good workout in. You feel like you're doing something, right? You're sweating. You're breathing quite a bit harder. Um, it's hard enough to break down your body, but not really hard enough to really make any high-level changes physiologically. It's no man's land. Yeah. And so yeah. what you need to do is make sure roughly 80% of your training time in a given week or a given month is in that zone one and two. Huh. And then maybe 15, 20% in zone four and maybe five or 10% in zone five. So maybe, like I said, once a week, if you're working out seven days a week, yeah. maybe one, you can throw some high-end hill sprints some speed work, you know, some of that high end stuff is important, but what most regular Joes who just want to finish the century bike ride or improve their marathon or do a Spartan or CrossFit games or whatever would be much better served spending the vast majority and they'll like it more. It's so nice to finish a workout and feeling good. It was, uh, it's actually kind of funny because I, so I don't, a lot of this stuff, I, my background, if, if I had to pick anything was obviously, you know, kind of the CrossFit mm -hmm. stuff before. And one of the, so there's two, two variations of this. There was this track coach that had done, um, ultras and he had done, I think he, like he was, I don't know if he won or was, he did something with the, one of the first ever Ironmans out in uh, Kona. So he ended up kind of switching over to the CrossFit space and became a coach for a lot of the you know the running part. Oh, of you're it. talking about Hinshaw. Um, you know? Oh no, that's what that's not what okay. I was thinking of. So I was okay. thinking about Brian McKenzie. Well, he did it too. So he yeah. was actually the original guy, right? And then right. and he, I mean, probably 15, 20 years ago now was Brian, and then it switched over to Chris. And uh, so what Chris did is he took an athlete that was primarily like big, strong, like had a lot of what you needed in that sport. But had really shitty endurance. Yes. And what he did was, I I remember the guy went into the the games and I think like three the three or four endurance type workouts over like fifteen over the course of a weekend. I think his average placing was like second place. Mm -hmm. And the, you look at this guy; he's like five eight two fifteen, yeah. like little ball of muscle. But I trained with him and had learned how to do it. And he also, this is when the nutrition was changing too, where yep. it went from like the paleo diet to like, yeah, right. you got to eat some gels. So he was eating a lot more, you know, carbs yeah. and keeping his intake up. And then the second one was the same Chris guy worked with, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy from Vermont that won a bunch, yes. Matt. So Matt Fraser started working with him and there was one, there was like the first year Matt came out and like blew away the field. Like it was, it was, they did a hill run. It was the first workout and they were kind of like live streaming it and someone lost him. They're like, yeah, Matt was winning. And like, I guess Matt's falling back from the pack and they were following the next guys. Come to find out, he actually was so far ahead that they actually weren't right. even paying attention. They ran by. And then he ended up doing a couple other sprint workouts and things, but Hinshaw had talked about it and he kind of did what you just talked about yeah. with training more of that low level. Yeah. And it increased so, but I, I didn't understand the concept until you explained it. 
yeah. And, and now the Matt guy who's put out like training programs and stuff, one of the things that he did during his course of like five years of winning every year was he trained, I think it was a minimum twice a uh, week in zone one or two long. Yep. And he did some other stuff too because obviously yep. he's elite. But the – and that was one of the things people were like, yeah, he's – because primarily you know that sport, it's more of like high intensity, yep. high – like probably that four and five. And he, he was doing a lot of that low level. Yep. And I think – because he was a, he was an engineer and, and mm-hmm. had a big background all this stuff. Um but it was kind of a paradigm shift for a lot of people in there because yeah. like, wait, how is this guy doing? He kind of, obviously, when he was you know, actually doing this stuff, he was kind of keeping it hush because it was like right. stuff that he knew that they didn't. Well, it's one of those CrossFit challenges, right, is because it is – that's one of, I guess, the negatives. And yeah. every, every, every plan has a negative or two or three, whatever, you know. Um, I think one of the negatives to the tra- – and I'm going traditional CrossFit was this habit of hitting it really hard – Every time you went into the gym. Correct, yeah. Um, and granted, you mixed it up in different you know, uh, lifts and different th- things and stuff. But it's still, it, it was hard to get past the intensity yeah. the vast majority of the time. Now, there are some changes, talking to a few CrossFit owners and stuff over the years, where they're starting to do more of that. But the old kind of wife's tale, I guess, if you know, that's still a phrase, but... Um, was, oh, you don't want to be messing around with any low-level aerobic as a strength and Correct. power athlete because it's going to take your top edge. You're going to lose your top Correct, edge. Correct, yes. You're going to lose your speed, your power. And that probably just isn't the case at all. And in a game, like something like a CrossFit Games, where, okay, you know, now they throw, I mean, they're known to throw in some crazy stuff in there. But when you think about it, the vast majority are still these kind of power events. Yeah. But even if you do, it's, if you're having to do three or four of those events over the course of six or seven hours, yeah, you don't underestimate the ability to have a really solid aerobic base of which to layer all this other stuff on. I think that they were. That's what happened with Matt. Was he was able, and he even said it. He's like wasn't fatiguing as fast. Wasn't fatiguing, and he said I think two of the reasons was what you just mentioned, and number the other one was nutrition. Mm-hmm. Where most of these guys were like eating and like I'm not hungry, blah blah blah, and he yeah. was like force feeding himself. And I think there was a one story he was talking about. He would take like Snickers bars and like undo the wrapper and throw it in the garbage because mm. people thought like, "What are you eating? Like a protein bar or whatever?" And he was just eating can. I mean, right. it's not the best quality, but at that level, yeah. you had to get carbs and sugar in. So he was saying, basically, got to the point where he was just like, he would get to the end of the games, like, "Oh, what are you gonna eat?" And he's like, "I don't want to eat a thing. Like I'm right. stuffed because yeah. he had ate constantly, but he had kept his energy, so he never had a dip off." And I yeah. think it was a mixture of both. He had the energy from food, but he also had the capacity from yes. what he had generated. Um, and it was the first, actually, what you had just said about how that increased, I, I didn't really understand it till now. Yeah, so that's, that, makes sense. that, yeah. And so that's what most people, getting back, if we want to go full circle, back to the VO2 and ultimately like, hey, I'd like to live longer and healthier, Yeah, is getting this VO2 up. And the best way to do that is just low level, a, a, a lot of easy conversational pace aerobic work. And like you said, it keeps it, it, the frequency they can work out increases just because you're not killing yourself. That's Injuries right. down, like That's you right. don't feel sore the next day. That's right. Um, and then motivation increases to do it again and to do it again. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and, and when you were going seven years, like that was a lot of your training, yes. which allowed you to kind of like. Yeah. And even then, before I really focused on it, um, and I was younger, I could get away with more stuff mm-hmm. like we all can. Um, I still probably was way too much yeah. over that 80-20, you know, what, what, uh, high intensity. So what do you, you wear just typically like a Garmin watch? Yeah, this is old. This is a, a Phoenix, one of the FENIX. But that, but that tracks enough just based on your pulse on your wrist? Yeah, I, 
since I started getting a little more hardcore into the into the heart rate stuff, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes I'll forget it, but I, I bought a cheap strap, mm-hmm. a heart rate strap's infinitely more accurate. Um, again, for and that na- syncs up with that. Yes, or can Bluetooth or however it yep, works. Yep, uh, Ant A N T plus I think is kind of the technology. There's a few different options now, but yeah, any cheap you could get. You know, one of these knockoffs on Amazon for thirty bucks for a heart rate strap, um, and it shows on your watch if you want it to. Um, so if I really care, but listen again, I'm a low common. You know, l- let's keep the bar as low as possible. If someone's got a cheap Fitbit that does a wrist heart rate. Yeah. If they're really hairy, I might have them like buzz the hair under the watch to make sure the band is snug. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be so. What if it's off three or four beats? Yeah. You know what I mean? For yeah. most people, it's like if you you really want to make an effort and say I'm going to lose some weight and I'm going to work on developing my aerobic fitness mm-hmm. by walking or going to the mall or doing the treadmill in your basement, wrist is fine, man. Um, and when you're, when you're talking um, being in that zone, what? time duration in that zone is there a specific time duration that you, like a sweet spot or kind of like this is a good range <laughs> the, the, i know you said a few hours a week the evidence is the more the better so there's really no like what would you think then if that's the case what would be the the low level baseline like three hours a week uh, yeah and that's a, we don't know exactly i don't okay. think anybody you know there's, there's you can read numbers all over the board from the experts um but most people are really shooting for like an hour a day, you know, 45 minutes, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, now if you have to break that into two different sessions, um, and again, that's, again, I don't want to lose people though, over that concept that say, well, one, I don't buy, I don't have the time. Mm -hmm. I just don't 99% of the time. I don't Now I get it. You know, you were in the three young, you know, three, three, kids, three, yeah. right? yeah, three yeah. young kids and all this and that, but man, you know, there's enough people that get up at five. Oh, in yeah, the morning, there's... or if yeah, that would be how I would choose if I had to. I mean, I'm not one to motivate to do it at eight at night, but there's it's just priorities. Yeah, you know, it really is. Again, there's exceptions, but for 99 percent of people, I just saw some tweet the other day. It was kind of funny. Is um, you sleep eight hours and you work eight hours because that leaves you ten more hours. You know, he goes, you know, don't tell me you can't eat right or find a little time to get your heart rate up. Yeah, um, that's all. There is a lot of free time if you're. I, I had a, a, fr- a friend, this is a local guy, actually. He goes, excuses are bullshit. He goes, basically, yeah. it's just, you know, it's an excuse, but it's, it's prioritization. That's yeah. why I always go up and I'm like, I never, if it comes to me not working out, if it comes to me not stretching, like, I, I'll go in and talk to him. Like, honestly, just yeah, yeah didn't make a priority of it. And no, that's what it comes down to. No, and yet, yet, and I listen, I've been known to do this. I love movies. I love television mm-hmm. and stuff. I just do. So put your tread, put TV in front of the treadmill. I mean, you're yeah. sitting there on the couch for three or four hours every single night. When I get your phone night. on half the time, just stream right. it on your phone. Right. There's really but, not many excuses anymore. Yeah. Especially if you just say, hey, I only got to get my heart rate up. Jeez. That could be walking the dog for most people. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Something. It, so. It's wild to think that, though. Like you said, the effort is relative to what you're, mm-hmm. you know. and Because that's the part I don't think that I got. I'm like, yeah, but if you're only going that fast, then that can't be. But again, it's that's relative. what makes them even crazier. So when, when you he, think about so it, so when like say those runners are going and they're running the four and a half minutes, and then they're they're training at nine minutes. When well, they, not always. I mean, those would be like their easy recovery runs would okay. be very, quite. But even slow. if they were going fast, they probably aren't running the four something. No, 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 no. Because that's you know that's a that's, that's a like race pace. But they yeah. could easily, if they're doing a tempo workout once or twice a week, they're yep. going to be at or around their race pace. Yeah. So they may be doing one mile repeats at four something pace or quicker, okay. four thirty pace. But for them, their VO two zone would be right. in that four or five range at that that's point. That's right. Gotcha. That might be their part of their twenty percent. 
Gotcha. But then the rest might be, I mean, if they're and, doing a marathon um, in two hours and two minutes or two hours and five minutes, um, you know, their long, easy run pace, which would be zone two, probably is still like 530 to six pace. So, <laughs> yeah. So they could, so even though it looks quick, they may only be in zone three. Or two. Or or two. Right. Or that's wild. That's, that's yeah, imagine crazy. that you could be running a 530 mile in zone two. And so, and their VO2 max would be off the charts, like high, relative. Super high. Yeah, 70s, 80s, yes. something like that. Yes. Um, well, and so what I like to do, do you do Strava at all? Are you on Strava? No. You ever no. heard of Strava? No. Oh, that's funny. You should. Uh, it's probably the biggest social media workout site. This one it's, right here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's free. Never I mean, I have a paid cool. account. You can pay a few bucks a year. Um, it's just, it's it's a social media fit, uh, uh, Facebook kind of for, for working out. And so you just follow, you follow people, you follow people, you follow athletes, famous people are on there. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then what they do is you sync like their workout watch, their Garmin or whatever, and all their workouts are, um, are uploaded. So if you go to, you could probably look me up. You might, Oh, you know what? I don't have my phone. I was going to say, you could look me up. Uh, Oh, you need to sign up. Yeah. That's all right. Um, but anyway, you could just, you can see people's workouts. It has the map, it has all their stats, it has exactly what they did. Um, what I do with with um, Strava is, oops, hold on, let me show you something. Here we go. Here, you can look them. There you go, so these are people I follow. So if you kind of scroll down, you could see there's a bunch of French guys that run the ultra trail Mount Blanc and there's backcountry skiers and there's marathoners and you just follow and, and most people just accept you and then you can see all their workouts. And so what I do when I use Strava, it's super cool. popular. Um, and then you can click on workouts and see the analysis. So you can see what their mile by mile pace of whatever they did. Could you see their heart rate and what zone Mo- they're in? It, they it's had up the- to them. Some people have it turned on. Some people don't. Um, more of the competitive athletes, but yeah, those that do, cool. it's the first thing I look at Galen is like, like have you ever heard of Killian Jornet? So Killian Jornet is, is this know. world-class mountain runner ultra. He set the world record of time going up Everest and he backcountry skis. He's just the freak of all freaks when it comes to mountain running okay. um, and skiing, backcountry skiing and everything. And he'll go do something. And it's like, you know, he's a tiny guy. He's like 140 pounds, super skinny. And he'll post, you know, I'll see all his workouts. And he just did one the other day where he was backcountry skiing and climbing. And he did like 22 something miles over like four and a half hours. And I look, I mean, really crazy pace and like 13,000 feet of climbing or something. And I look, his average heart was like 139. <laughs> so like effortless, you know, for like a 38, 40 year old guy. Wild. And that's what, so I always wow. go to heart rate first because it always blows me away because I'm like, wow, this guy did a 20 mile training run, like a long run at like 605 pace, you know, for the marathon. So that might be like mid, mid twos for him. What do you mean? Like VO2 oh, zone or two. zone. Yes. Which, which again, for most people that could be just like a normal walk down the road. Yes. That's so wild. Yep. It's almost like it, it, it's like bending what you think should actually happen. Yeah. Like I said, like it's almost warped, like kind of thinking. So for just personal story. So back, I did Ironman Placid in 06, 2006, 2007, 2009. In hindsight, was doing most of my training probably in zone three and four. Not knowing it, not really paying much attention to heart rate back then. Just going out and training kind of by feel. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I look back and I, I kick myself because if I would have focused on that more in those years, yeah, I did perfectly fine. I, I my last two years, I did. I went just under eleven hours, ten fifty nine, yeah. ten fifty seven, which yeah. pretty respectable because yeah. back then I had. You know, I was I was in my well, what was that? Oh seven and oh nine. So how many years ago is that now? Twenty nineteen, fourteen years. Yeah, I had two kids, like two and four years old. I was running two offices. I was lucky if I got eight to ten hours a weekend, which is nothing for most Ironman people Mm -hmm. or women. Um, But I look back at that last year when I did ten fifty seven, my average heart rate for eleven hours was one sixty seven. Which is an enormously high number. Yeah, like that's what I was saying earlier. Is you can fake it and do a pretty decent job. Yep. But man, that would have been even being thirty-five years old or thirty-seven years old. That high one sixties probably was at least low zone four for me, if not wow. a little higher. Yeah. And I'm like, I held that for eleven hours, and I'm like, so but what- man, if I had an aerobic base. I could have been doing that same pace at like maybe 15, 20 beats a minute lower if so, I had spent. So if you were doing, so how would that translate again? Just like the relationship. So if that, say that number went from 160 down to 130, yep. your, your heart rate. At the same pace. At the same pace. Yeah. It would have been, you obviously could have gone faster because you could have pushed the pace. Well, right. You're thinking of it the wrong way. So, okay. so if, if, if I had built, my zone two, let's just say, on, for biking and running, the yep. top of my zone two may have, well, it's always, I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain this. So basically, if I went 11 flat and my average heart rate was 167, okay, okay if I had spent a year, two years prior to that training way more aerobic base, zone one and zone two, yep. I may still have been able to go at 167 for 10 hours, but I may have knocked an hour off my time. So you see what I'm saying? At the same effort, your speed is going to be improved with a bigger aerobic base because 167 will not seem as high. Or I could go at the same pace with a much lower heart rate. And it just feel easier. And it would feel easier. Exactly. And... I would say naturally you're probably going to you want it to go the same pace and feel easier. You go faster. That's right. And feel the same pace. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's wild. And it's Just, crazy because it doesn't like what you said relative to a race like that. Like taking an hour, I mean, that's dropping what ten percent of your time yeah. just by training that. And, yeah. and arguably, you probably could have went even quicker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Who knows? Yeah, it's a lot of things. Because now you're talking, you know, you start going multi-hour, then, you know, nutrition is a huge role. Yeah. You talk to anybody who does any Ironmans or ultra marathons is the other popular dialed on all the... It's just, there's a lot more crap that can go wrong. Um, So I want to go back to the one that you were talking about before. Just very quickly, um, the blue zone, you talked about Greece. So blue zone, for people that (laughs) don't know, these are places that historically the age or the life expectancy is higher than normal significantly higher of 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 90 to 100 plus year old people yes and what so what i guess where are the blue zones roughly that you know of and then what's your experience with the blue zones like what's life like in the blue zone well so i and it varies tremendously so number one this is not my field of expertise i've just had a really strong interest in it for probably 20 years it was started by a guy well the guy whose name is connected to it is dan butner Butner, okay. Butner, Butner, B-U-E-T-T-N-E-R. Um, funny enough, the book's been out, his book called The Blue Zone. I think he was originally sponsored by National Geographic, possibly, don't quote me on that. 
but basically, him and he and his researchers just kind of discovered these little outliers, these these communities, these regions of the world that had way higher levels of old people, okay, okay? and healthier, not just living longer, living better longer, okay. And they called these the blue zones. I think it was basically because they circled them in blue on the map, okay. literally. Very, yeah, very yeah. And so he's got a fairly new Netflix series out that just came out in the last year. Okay. Um, very polished and very high editorial. Productive. It's really sharp production value. It's, it's really cool. And basically each episode is a different part, a different zone. And so basically they discovered five blue zones in the country, in the world. One is in, interestingly, in Loma Linda, California, in Southern California. Yeah. Another one is um, this Nicoyan, I believe it's called, Nicoyan Peninsula in Costa Rica. The other one okay. is Sardinia off the coast of Italy. Okay. The other one is Ikaria, Greece. And the other one is Okinawa, Japan. Those are the five. Actually, here we go. Here's a map, too. Yep. And so all of them extraordinarily different. They're different geographically. They're yeah. different religions. They have hugely different diets. In general, different diets with some common themes. Um, and basically, they went and deep did a deep dive at each one of these places. Now, interestingly, Loma Linda is there because Loma Linda is almost exclusively, the entire city is Seventh-day Adventists. So these are super strict. Uh, it's a sect, a branch of... Okay. Um, I think Mormonism, but I'm not sure. But very, very religious folks who are extremely strict. Uh, is it? Uh, no, Seventh actually, day, no. Seventh day of it, it's not. No, you're right. Is it Mormon? Loma Linda, yeah. Loma Linda. I don't think it's. I don't think they're Mormon. But anyway, um, they're a very strict religious uh, sect where there is no alcohol. I don't believe they do caffeine. Um, tons of focus on extended family, you know, living together. Education is very, very high. Um, so that's kind of the overriding theme there. Okay. Um, I think very little red meat. I think a lot of vegetarianism, but don't quote me on that. Um, the Nicoyan Peninsula, lots of beans, lots of, you know, starchy vegetables. Um, Okinawa, on the other hand, you know, tons of, of rice, tons of seafood, you know, so very different. Um, I got infatuated for some reason years ago with this island of called Ikaria in Greece. And I have been there three times now, three summers in a row. We've, we've spent some time there on vacation. And I'm absolutely in love with it. I'd, I'd move there tomorrow. It's one of the most laid back. The Greeks in general are pretty laid back people. Okay. And they all make fun of Ikaria, like leave your watch at home. You know, half the time the stores just, if they don't feel like opening, they're just not going to open. Um, but like one in three people on this small island live to 90 or more. And in these blue zones, not only are they living to 90, 100, 100 plus, they have virtually no heart disease. They have no dementia or Alzheimer's. They have very little rate, very, very low rates of cancer. So they're not only just living longer, their, their, their health span is much longer. And I could see it. I mean, personally, you see that they, they walk everywhere. It's a very rugged island. Okay. Beaches on the coast. Hillside big mountains, a little bit. Steep cliffs and mountains. They have yep. a very rough history. Like the, the, the country of Greece didn't even really recognize them until the 70s, 1970s oh, and 60s. So they were basically used to doing everything themselves. They used to be hammered with, um, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. They had different pirates would attack the island, and they learned how to do these very unique what, things. What's this right here? 
That's what, Turkey. What, that's Turkey. Okay. Yeah, so it's almost to the coast of Turkey. I, I don't. I don't think I realized that Greek or Greece had that many islands that go Thousands, all the way over. Thousands, I think. That's wild. Yeah, because I mean, you always look at like oh yeah this and then maybe that. No, you can this see is, Turkey from the island on a clear day. Wow. It's it's I don't know exactly how many miles, but not that far. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so so they walk everywhere. They have their own wine going back centuries that are only grown with grapes from that island. They have their own honey that has these high antibacterial things just from bees on that island. And I don't know. I've just been uh, very infatuated with it. And And what do you think the main, is it mostly diet? I mean, do people, they don't move there and strictly say like, I'm not drinking alcohol. I'm not having coffee. Quite the opposite there. Like I said, they're eatery and wine. Most drink a moderate amount of wine. Um, They, their daily steps, quote unquote, I hate that kind of phrase, but they move a lot. Okay. They tend to their gardens. They walk between villages to get groceries. Um, they're just very active people. But there's also a very high friends and family connectivity rate. They have these yeah. festivals like, you know, every month or two where they're up all night, but dancing. And it's just, it's, it's very family oriented. Um, and the diet is very low in red meat. They have wild goats is about the only, if you want to call that red meat, but also very little seafood, believe it or not, for an island. So lots of beans, dark red, you know, vegetables. Correlation to, I was going to say longevity and and non-meat or? No, that's all over the board too. Yeah. I think red meat, um, maybe a little bit of a connection. I'm, that's kind of outside my expertise. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you also don't see, you know, the, the push years ago was with, you know, the vegetarianism or the veganism. There really isn't any connection there either. Um, what does seem in Dan Buettner... Most of them are roughly around the same... Well, yeah, you're looking at latitude. Latitude. Yeah, warmer weather, for sure. I was going to say, they seem like they're kind of pressed down a little bit more. Definitely warmer weather, which you could, you could uh, I guess... Between, I mean, just going outside. Yeah. Well, there's interesting geographical things. Um you know, so is there something with warmer weather? Is there something you could argue to less variations in daylight the closer you get to the equator? You know, the days are closer to 12 hours of light year round. Gotcha. And they don't have these extended seasons with almost no dark and almost no light, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm just speaking out loud. I yeah. have no evidence of this. I'm just thinking, I mean, there's a huge connection we've known for 30 plus years with hugely higher rates of MS you know, multiple sclerosis around the 42nd, 43rd, 44th degree latitude all the way around the globe. People in this area, and that's us, say, we fall in that have area. much higher rates of MS. Some, I mean, and no one that I know of has an answer to it. But I would say like most there's people around here that know people that have MS. You know what I mean? So like, Oh, yeah, it's not. Yeah, but I'm yeah. just saying there's, there's certain things in the world. Who knows if yeah. we'll ever find answers, but there's definitely geo, geographical or, you know, connections there. Um, we're going I mean, just, all over the board with yeah. this today. How much time do you have, John? I got as much time as you want, dude. Okay, we'll, I like we'll go. We'll, we'll go a few. Yeah, we'll go a little bit longer. I got some. We're gonna go a little yeah, longer on this go one. Go for it, man. Um, because I was gonna end it with like some easy ones that. But no, I want to. I want to keep going on Let's some of this. Deep dive. So the. Uh, so back to. So this is what last week we went, and I think I told you we went up to Montremblant, which was fun. We mm-hmm. it was cold as hell, but it was which was a little warmer. But we ended up doing this spa thing before. It was a Scandinavian mm-hmm. spa. I think I was telling you about it. So obviously it's, it's hot, cold contrast, mm-hmm. kind of like relaxation. It was for – we were there probably like three hours. And I would say 
partly there was the, the hot, there was the cold, there was the aspect of it was quiet. There was no digital distractions. Mm-hmm. I also spent time it was just with my wife. So it was like very just relaxing. And for three hours, it was amazing. And it's crazy how in three hours you can go from, you know, life, baseline life to like you leave and it's like, I'm just mellowed out and feel mm-hmm. great. And what, what, what's to be said? Cause I know you talked about like cold showers and then sauna. I've been trying to incorporate more sauna. Haven't done the ice bath thing yet. I would like to try it. Um, or cold showers or whatever, mm-hmm. but so basically what we did, and I, I, I we went from their their prescription there was, and again they're talking to the the common person of mm-hmm. you know general guideline was about fifteen minutes in some type of hot and yep. hot being hot tub, dry sauna, or um, steam sauna. So those are kind of the options. So you go in about fifteen minutes, and they said to go into the cold. They said go in for like fifteen to twenty seconds. Mm. Now I've heard. And when I say cold, most of the ones there were somewhere between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Um, they did have the river open, which is closer to freezing, but I don't think anybody went down there. Um, so when you're looking at the two, um, and then after you went into the cold, there was kind of like they suggested maybe like a 15 minutes, just what they call relaxation, mm-hmm. where you just kind of go sit, not cold, not hot, you know, t- put a towel or robe on and just kind of chill out. Mm-hmm. Um after doing both of those, so we went into the steam sauna, or sorry, the dry sauna for about 15, maybe 20 minutes tops. Then we went into the cold, and the, there was a guy there who was like, if you want to do like the guided tour kind mm-hmm. of thing of it, you can. So we end up doing like some breathing exercises in the sauna, left the sauna to go in the cold, and he's kind of giving you tips. Basically, basically, it's breathe through it. You can stand it. Just make regulate mm-hmm. your breathing. Don't like get tight up like this and stay loose and couple things he said was like keep your shoulders down almost smile just like mm-hmm. to kind of mentally not get into the shock so i ended up going in the cold which was like 50 something degrees for about three minutes yep and it was it was more tough in the beginning and then it kind of slow mm-hmm. it's not easy at all but like it gets it certainly gets easier as you go along um but then you got out and you just chilled and it was the, it was it felt amazing when you got out so yeah. have you done stuff like that? Are you familiar? I mean, what's I your level? I have never of... done a spa. Okay. You look at me, what I do for a living. I've only had like, I think I've had two massages in my entire life. Okay. And to show you how not attentive I am at my own body sometimes is, I remember years ago, probably before you guys were even married, your lovely wife, yep. we did a barter on treatments and she owed me a few free ones. She, and I never took her up on her. I didn't even have to pay for him. So I, that tells you how bad I am. I think which, they're still there because every yeah. time I go in, I'm like, yeah. so I saw John and John mentioned this. Said he wanted to talk to you about this or this. And then she's like, he's supposed to come And in. that's literally probably 15 years ago. Yeah. 14 so years ago. I think ago. we've had 10 years of her, yeah. her being like, he still has to come in. Yeah. First. So no. So I, that shows you how bad I am. Um, so I've never really done a spa spa like that. Although there are some, supposedly some good ones up in Montreal I'd be curious about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I my experience has come mainly to just the cold showers okay. at home, and it's one of those weird things in life that until I started my streak years ago, my first streak with the cold, something you never crossed my brain is how much, especially up here in this neck of the woods, 
how much colder the cold water is in like January and February than it is in the summer. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, it makes sense, but it's just something that never crossed my mind because I've never stood under ice cold water before. Yeah. Um, and then thrown in with an occasional, very rare jump in the lake in the winter. I've done a few times over that where yeah. I've wandered in on the boat launch or something if it's open. Yeah. Um, where it's probably in the upper 30 degrees. That's, um, that's cold. But most of the studies I've seen, it is around 50 to 50 three degrees a yeah. lot of the studies so right where they had you yeah temperature wise uh, again it, it, it depends the answer is it depends on the goals and i'm not an expert on cold and heat mm-hmm. i've certainly read a lot um but certainly not my i don't have a phd in any of this stuff um it depends on what your goal is because what i think one of the problems is is and this is a whole other can of worms but there's a lot of evidence that says athletes probably should not be doing cold fairly soon after a workout if they're looking to maximize gains. Okay, Okay, whether that's muscular gains, physiological, aerobic, whatever, is that the body needs that time um, to basically recover and kind of quickly plummeting the body temperature may be slowing or or minimizing some of the gains from that workout. So if you are going to do cold... It might be better to do it later in the day than right after your workout. Could you go hot then cold? Like when no, you get out? it doesn't matter. It's okay. because the other things just, I've just read time. is just yeah, exactly is okay. is if you're going to go b- back and forth or you're going to do a regular shower, you should. Most of the stuff I've read is recommending always finishing on cold. Yes, you know, and yep. so if you're finishing on cold again. I do it in the morning shower. It's just easiest. Yep. But I'm also not a world-class athlete. So it probably doesn't matter a whole lot to regular Joes and Janes that are yeah. just trying to work out and, and be fit. Um, but I guess there is some stuff out there that says to maximize the benefits of your workout, not doing the cold. It's, it's you know, similar reasons in a way we don't recommend anybody icing anymore for musculoskeletal injuries, you know, mm-hmm. like we all grew up doing, is there is something to that natural inflammation that occurs after an injury and even to some lesser extent after a good workout that stimulates the healing and the recovery process. And when you blunt that with ice or slow it down and minimize the inflammatory response, it might numb the area up, but it may be delaying the healing process or the recovery process. So so if you had like a rolled ankle, just let it swell up? Yeah, we've completely gone back the last 10 or 12 years. Okay. All of that growing up with the rice, remember rest ice compression elevation and... Um, then it became price, you know, protect rice elevation, compression. Um, it, it is now no longer for musculoskeletal injuries. We never recommend ice anymore. Now, the only exceptions would be, um, you know, do not consider this medical advice uh, if I don't see you in person. Um, you know, if you had severe swelling for some reason or severe bruising, maybe ice for like a day to two or three days at most. Yep. Um, but even then, I'd probably recommend just not doing anything and then switching to heat within a couple of days. And what? so obviously uh, cold compresses heat. It's what relaxes or what's the... Don't even think of it that way. The whole purpose, and it's also why now we are recommending, again, for musculoskeletal injuries. So you pull a muscle, you tweak your back, your tendonitis flares up, Mm -hmm. arthritis, most arthritis for this matter, things like that. Um, 
really try to avoid taking any NSAIDs, you know, your Advils, um, anything that anti, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for the same reason that the inflammation, so you injure a muscle Mm -hmm. or a disc or whatever it is, you injure a body part. The reason, one of the reasons it hurts is that inflammation is produced, which protects you, right? It creates pain, it keeps you from moving too much, and it keeps you from doing more damage. The trouble is, in that inflammation, that fluid that the body naturally is producing are these enzymes that trigger the body to initiate the healing process. So when you block the inflammation with an Advil, or you minimize the inflammation by packing bags of ice on it, you are temporarily making it numb up and feel a little better, but you're delaying the onset of healing. And so it'll take that injury longer to heal. So unless the pain is really, really severe, we really try to recommend do not use NSAIDs and try to minimize using any ice. And and when you go to heat, what's the heat, the purpose of the heat? So the heat is, is, um, um, warming tissue, obviously. Mm -hmm. So for things like, um, uh, you know, tendon issues. Tendons love heat. It increases elasticity. It increases blood flow. So any kind of stagnant blood, bruising, whatever is going to help speed that up. Um, but heat just feels good. If you just mm-hmm. talk to people, I mean, you see people all day long and they're like, they're like, oh, I've been icing. I'm like, no, we really, you know, yeah, I strained your, you strained your back. Um, and they say, I said, have you been icing? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was told to do. Okay. Uh, we really switched to heat immediately. Oh, almost all the time. It's, oh, thank you. Heat feels so much better. You know, and I'm like, I wish people would just trust their instinct. We've kind of known you feel better after you use heat. People yeah. just do ice because it's all we've been told for our whole lives. And and sometimes, like you said, kind of the uh, z- working out in zone one or zone two or having heat, like that's actually the opposite of what people think. Mm-hmm. They got to struggle to have whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's actually sometimes exactly. easier. Is that is that mm-hmm. pretty common that it's usually... Like I said, the more natural, feel-good one is the one we should do, or is there a point so of like seem, push? Well, no, but there seems to be more and more, again, not just to get back to the, the brain driving everything, mm-hmm. even though we may not understand why or how. There are studies that were, were done several years ago um, with running sneakers, with mattresses. And what they did was essentially told people to go in, like the running the running shoe, so they took a whole bunch of recreational runners. Mm-hmm. They split them into two groups. One group they sent in to be completely evaluated by a team of experts, you know, podiatrists, running experts, biomechanists, their high-speed gait analysis on the treadmills, all this. And then they were customized, given recommendations of specific makes and models of running shoes that they need to wear based on all their unique findings. Okay. The other half were taken to like a Dick Sporting Goods and said, we just want you to try at least four or five different makes and models, get on the treadmill, wear them around the store for a few minutes, just wear the ones home that feel best on your feet in the store. And then they've tracked them for weeks and months, and the group that chose by comfort had far fewer lower extremity injuries than the people that were fitted. So our brains are telling us something, and they did a similar study with mattresses. Just pick the mattress based on comfort, try them on in the store for five or 10 minutes, and take the one home, and they rated higher satisfaction Do you know what the reason is? No, I don't know, other than our brain is probably smarter than we tend to give it credit for, Yeah, and this kind of trusting instincts and trusting what feels good, um, there might be something to that. 
across the board, I guess. The, uh, I mean, how about even relationships, you know? People, you know, you, you have these instincts. And the yeah. more people you meet, the more background you have, the, the bigger the baseline to draw from. But my wife always says, you know, gets annoyed and you know, go to a, a party or a reception or something and I meet someone and I'm like, that person's a little sketchy. And she, what are you talking about? They were nice. And, you know, you find out a few months later, like, no, that person really was, was pretty sketchy. sketchy. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I guess I find my read of people maybe a little better than average, but partly just because... I have been doing nothing but talking to people one-on-one for 20-something years. I, uh, and so, you know, you, you learn to read people pretty quick. Well, a couple of things. I mean, just in life, this could be work, this could be friends, this could be whatever. Like, I've had a handful of times in my life where I get this, it's like a gut feeling. You know, everybody has like the day-to-day gut feelings, mm-hmm. or I say day-to-day, maybe week-to-week. Mm-hmm. And there's been a couple of times that I've had like almost like a physical pain mm-hmm. from a gut feeling. And it's not like a negative physical pain. It's just I can physically feel something that I'm like, Man, I feel like something's hitting me in the mm-hmm. stomach, like the gut, and I'm I'm assuming that's where the terminology comes from. And more times than not, it's kind of like whatever that gut feeling is ends up becoming a physical feeling. Mm-hmm. It's obviously tied in mentally, but sometimes it's not even it's not even a known thing. I feel like the gut hits you first, and then you're like, "What is that?" And then eventually, your brain. And this is how I kind of feel. It's like I get a gut feeling, then I feel it physically, and then emotionally, it kind of catches my mm-hmm. brain catches up to what it is and then i react accordingly but there is a i, I there's got to be some type of correlation between all that this but is, I don't, we're back to the brain though galen yeah so there is a whole field of science that's now focused on the neurology between brain and your gut health that there is a connection neurologically that might be an explanation for some of the stuff we talked about earlier for yeah. some of these GI issues and autoimmune and celiac is does chronic stress lead phys- you know we know it does now yeah. to physical issues right yeah, absolutely. increased stress increases what's called the sympathetic nervous system right your fight or flight yeah. and most of us are unfortunately in today's day and age living our entire lives at this low to moderate stress level with no end in sight yeah. so we are living with chronic increased sympathetic nervous system tone now when you think of the sympathetic nervous system you know you think fight or flight but it also we now have evidence that increased sympathetic nervous system increases the fascial tone in your entire body so y'all are to this fascia it connects every muscle yep. together and you are living people aren't just i feel so tight all the time there's a reason for that and when you increase sympathetic activity on a chronic level, you deal with physical tightness because of it. When you can do deep breathing and you can increase what's called parasympathetic and decrease that fight or flight, the tone in your entire skeletal system decreases. It's really So then that's when you almost like you wash away the heaviness yes, of whatever. Exactly right. Um I was gonna say like day to day you talk about uh you know, obviously Take care of yourself. You get outside. Do that stuff. Do you find that you are able to manage stress level at all with that, or is that still part of? Because you, I mean, you kind of joking before. I think about you know if something's moved or whatever it stresses me out. My routine's not there, but um, like I would say is like I deal with stress. I think a lot of people deal with some mm-hmm. level of stress, and I certainly feel like the days you don't have stress, where you're like, man, everything just felt like it went mm-hmm. well today. You just feel more relaxed in other areas of your life. And there's, a, I mean, a complete direct correlation, but it's also, it's the logical thing is like, do stuff that doesn't stress you out. I mm. mean, we're human, so things come in our lives and we're really trying to fight it. I mean, is that something that you find that you deal with? Do you find that like you've able to 
uh, prioritize parts of your life which kind of suppress any type of stress that you get? Yeah, I, I've found, to kind of answer your question, I think I've learned to uh, compartmentalize it, meaning okay. by far the biggest stress day-to-day -day of my life it, are my work days. Yeah. It's just, it's really fast paced. I don't take a lunch break. I don't take any breaks. I just work for, you know, eight plus hours, come and in you're in a late people nonstop. Yeah, nonstop. Yep. Um, two or three rooms going um, nonstop. Um, you know, all the issues that come about with dealing with 20 or 25 people in a day, different personalities and people running late and just running a business, yep. you know, day to day. So I just, kind of have taken the like I'm typically because I travel a lot for work on the weekends so I'm usually only in the office like three long days yeah so I just compartmentalize sometimes a fourth depending of if I'm working the weekends but um I just know in advance those are my work days so I still get a workout in mm -hmm. but I don't really mentally plan to accomplish much on those days of the week it's yep. just let's get through the work day and so I kind of know that so I, I'm kind of an fa a feast or famine. Okay. So when my days are off, I have zero problems. I could sit, like on vacation, people think, I got no problem. I could sit there on the beach with a Kindle for eight straight hours and have zero problems at all. Like I don't have the ants in the pants and this and that. Yep. It's just all or nothing. When I'm working, it's work. And when I'm not, I would rather take a hot shower or bath and read a book and just do what I let you watch TV. Um, so I just find that easier to tolerate. I know my Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays most week are going to be long and brutal, um, or whatever days I'm, I'm at the office. And then, you know, when I travel for work, I do a lot of lecturing and teaching. Like I just was downstate this weekend, teaching a two day class to a bunch of PTs and stuff. And, um, those are also stressful for different ways, but not as, not as high as my work, my clinic days. So I've kind of clinic is a, yep. if I'm working the weekends teaching, you know, most people would think getting in front of a bunch of people talking all day is very, very stressful, yeah. but I've been doing it a long time. So, and, and I know the material, so that's a little, I'd say moderately stressful. And then my days off obviously are the least stressful. And so I just compartmentalize them. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I try to, th those are days when I, to me with kids, mm -hmm. like I, that's where I go is like work days. I try to lock in mm -hmm. to what I'm doing and then. I try and and I do this well if I and if, if I do this it goes well mm -hmm. I should say is that typically when I have kids like I try not to put extra burden on myself of like this has to get done mm -hmm. kind of what you just said but then there's days where I still struggle with it where I do get that like you said that that jittery or antsiness mm -hmm. of like I I got to do something cuz I'm just mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything and there's times where I'm like, I just got to like chill. And I mm -hmm. usually that happens on the weekends for me because mm -hmm. some of the best weekends are we have nothing going on. Mm -hmm. But there's also times where the weekend where I'm like, I can only sit around so so much. And usually you're trying to do like house projects and you got, you know, the kids and everything else. But um, I do find days that I can just sit and chill. And like Sunday was a perfect example. Like I was like, I don't really feel like doing much today. Yep. And I just wanted to watch football and yeah. we just hung oh, yeah. out. And it was just like a nice... I felt good that the day was good. I, and I don't watch a lot of stuff during the day and or like on the weekends. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So like just sit down and like watch. And when I say <clears throat> watch the games, you're like watching it. You're talking. You're right. kind of, but you're just like chilling. You're not yep. like doing any. I'm not trying to do stuff around the house. I'm not doing work. I'm just yep. kind of like checked out. And there's a level I – there's a, a, a guy I know that 
told me, he goes, if you work really, really hard during the week, he goes, you can't work hard all the time. Kind of like you yeah. said with recovery days. So he goes, if you're going to rest, like basically go all in on rest and just hang out right. and do nothing. And I, I, I kind of, that's something I always remember. And sometimes I try to do that when I'm like, you know, just, you know, just relax. You don't yeah. need to do this today. But and, that gets us back to that 80, 20 kind yeah. of role, even though obviously with life and work, <clears throat> I, we all wish it could be 80, 20. Yeah. But if you could at least just polarize everything, like your stressful days are going to be your stressful days, but then you're not making a point of making your, you know, non-stressful days very as little stress as possible. Yeah. I think there's a benefit. There was a book. I won't say famous. That might be stretching it. I've seen the guy speak years ago. Um, his name is Robert Sapolsky. He's got a new book out, actually. I, someone just I saw on Instagram. But his book years ago is called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Okay. And he's a PhD, and basically the whole book is on the harms of chronic stress. So hinting okay. a little at what we were just talking about. Um, but the reason the animal world doesn't have ulcers, quote-unquote, you know, using the stress analogy— is that in the world of a gazelle or a zebra, right, their world is from zero stress to literally life or death yeah. in a matter of seconds. The difference between the animal world and us is they know it is over in seconds, right? And yeah. then they're back to zero stress again, just grazing and eating and sleeping. And then the minute that thing starts chasing them, I'm either dead here in six seconds or I'm going to be completely peaceful again for the yeah. time being. We are the opposite. We are all living with low to moderate stress almost constantly. And the key takeaway like from his drip. study yeah. is with no end in sight. That's the problem. Which leads to probably more stress. It's just, just that's the key is there's yeah. no foreseeable end to that stress. And so that's where you get stuck with these, starting to see these chronic symptoms. Yeah. You know, and we haven't even mentioned really pain. You know, you want to open a, an interesting, interesting field right now in the last 10 years is, is the field of pain science. Like, what is pain? Okay. And so, you know, you mentioned your gut pain earlier and this and that. But let me ask you a question. And I, I ask this to like Kairos and PTs when I teach my courses. Um, what is pain? We all have experienced it, some of us a lot more often than others. Yeah. All different types of pain, whether it's a stomach ache or your Achilles tendon or your headache or your neck or your low back. I mean, it's got to be something where, I mean, it's neurological. So, like, there's something where, because when you have pain, I mean, th I, I go with this. If you get anesthesia, if you get mm -hmm. an anest or anesthetics, for, yep. you go into surgery and they, quote, unquote, knock you out, yep. you typically wake up. I mean, you might wake up and come out and have pain from whatever you're coming out. You don't realize like something was cut open. You don't know mm -hmm. what the incision. You don't know if they're poking and hitting nerves and stuff that would have been excruciating. Mm -hmm. Because for whatever reason, it I, I don't know the science behind anesthetics, but it basically, I'm assuming, shuts off whatever those receptors are that would increase the pain or whatever. I, I get I'm That's a very yeah. layman term, uh, uh, you know, trying to guess at it. But um, I would say pain is some type of neurological response to probably physically hitting a nerve so i and i wouldn't have expected you to answer this because it's it's okay. it's very different than what most people that seems to be the theme of the show a different answer i was going to say expect um and i'll ex let me ex tell you what it is and then i'll explain what i mean pain and then i'm going to relate it back to chronic pain okay okay because that's what i deal with 
a good chunk of my day is people with chronic pain, right? Low back for years yeah. and severe and they're disabled and this and that can't work, can't pick up the grain, you know, all that. Pain is an emotion produced by the brain. So okay. pain, the experience of having pain is an emotion that the brain produces. So in a weird way, pain is no different than being happy or sad or you know, fill in the blank of any emotion. Mm -hmm. So what we do not have in our body are pain signals. All we have are, we have millions and millions of nerve endings of all different types that are in every square millimeter of tissue, right? Mm -hmm. There are nerve endings called proprioceptors that tell you, um, uh, you know, where you are in space. There's mechanoreceptors that that tell you that you're moving, a body part is moving. Um, there's millions of different types. Okay. You also have something called nociceptors. Okay. Nociceptors are quote unquote signal and sense damage. Okay. okay. So you put your hand on a hot burner the nociceptive fibers in that area light up and they start to bombard the brain with data. But there's not a pain signal. Every nerve in the body is only sending data to the brain. Think X's and O's or yeah. like ones and zeros yeah. if you're a computer programmer, yep. right? So that's noce you burn your hand, nociceptive data starts getting bombarded into the brain properly. Yep. And that's part of the reflex that makes you pull your hand back quick. It's what makes you know you ultimately hurt. Because the way the system works is when the brain starts getting a bunch of extra nociceptive input data, mm -hmm. it should interpret that and produce the emotion of pain. That's what protects you, whether it's a torn hamstring or a burned hand or you step on a needle, Yep. right? You get nociceptive input to the brain. Uh, the brain produces the emotion of pain. Well, what we're finding is people that have chronic pain, and it doesn't make sense physically. I'll see people in my office that had a legit injury four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And why does their back still hurt as much now as it did four years before? Everything in the body, every expert in the world is in agreement. Every tissue in the body will heal itself if it's able to. It will heal itself within a few months to a year. So why is their pain level still so high years later? Because everything should have healed many, many times over. Mm -hmm. So where I'm going with this is... What we now know with a certain percentage of the population, and that can be with low back pain, it could be with any sort of pain anywhere in the body, that at some point in the recovery process, the wires get a little mixed up in their brain and body. And this is the key, is their brain starts producing the emotion of pain to non-nociceptive input. So now they just move their body part yep. a few degrees, mechanoreceptors, proprioceptors trigger, the brain picks that up and produces the emotion of pain. That's why they mm. can't move an inch or two without screaming out in pain. It's excruciating. That doesn't make sense. There's a reason why a lot of them have been through round after round of PT, multiple surgeries, injections, pain medications. Most of them are clinically depressed, right? addicted to pills sometimes yeah and none of so it's it just works. as depressed that emotion of pain 
their brain has become so threatened and scared and nervous yeah. that it's at basically think of it as their brain has been sitting at terrorist level threat red. Yeah. So any kind of input, its brain is firing off this emotion of pain. Now, that's a weird concept and people get very defensive because you think you're making it up. Yeah. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying your pain is real. What's wrong in a lot of cases is that there's might already physically, yeah, that there's nothing physically wrong with the tissue. Yeah, the t- the, the the screw up is in the wiring and how your brain is is interpreting it. Wow, it's crazy. And there's been no, I guess uh, they've never come up with a solution to that. Oh no, point. they have. So so the 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 world's best pain clinics are I would like to say are more psychotherapy than physical therapy at this point. Okay. Because this is a hard conversation for people like this, right? Um, and and what the, the the goal is, and I have this talk weekly in my office with with this population, is you have to understand that your pain you're experiencing when you stand up out of the chair and your back is screaming at you, yeah. That we, again with chronic people, um, that your pain you experience is real. It hurts but that there's nothing physically wrong. And the way to reset that bar is to find some kind of movement. I don't care how silly or stupid or minimal it is. Maybe they can't move really much range of motion in any direction except one. Maybe they can kind of lean to their left a little bit, you know, just a few inches, but they can do it. And like, that's actually not too bad. That doesn't hurt too much. Well, guess what their homework is, their first visit. I'm going to have them doing like 20 of those left side bends yeah. every hour on the hour. Every week, every minute they're awake, I'm going to have them do a couple of those. Because what you're doing is you're showing their brain movement without pain. And what you can do with enough time and repetitions wow. is that brain starts to become desensitized. That threat level starts to go from red down to orange, down to yellow, down to whatever. Right. And then if they're good about just doing those left side bends or whatever it might be, I check them back a week or two later. Very often, all of their range of motion has improved without ever once directly working it, meaning the brain Mm. feels safer. Yeah. And now allows a little better range of motion. And so over enough time, that's how you get these a lot of these chronic pain people out of the funk. You know, it's 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 tricking the brain. It, It is. It is in a wow. way. The, the analogy I use in class a lot is if, you know, you and I are in the studio. If I had a two by four, mm-hmm. okay, and I had it 20 feet long laying on the ground, would you be willing to, to line up behind me? We're going to see if we can walk down this four inch wide board on the ground, right? Most yeah. people in the class would say I'd do that. Okay. What if I now, we do it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to suspend it off a few ropes, 15 feet off the ground. Yeah. How many people in the class are jumping behind me to walk on that swaying, you know, four-inch board? Yeah. What's changed? It's the same board. Yeah. What's changed? The unknown. Yeah. The threat. Or the environment of, yeah. The threat. Yeah. The brain feels uncertain and it feels threatened. Yeah. That's how these chronic pain people are living every minute of every day. Their brain is constantly threatened and unsure of things. And that's why it becomes hypersensitive to everything. Huh. Very difficult. Yeah. Very interesting, but it, is that uh, something like uh, more recent that you've kind of come across and tried to? It's not me at, by any means. Or but this is yeah, it's been pa- the, to... the field of pain science has been probably really exploded the last ten or twelve years. Yeah, um, I actually highly recommend to anybody who who is in chronic pain 
and is open-minded to this concept, and a lot a lot aren't. It's a tough thing to wrap their mind around a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's a great book um, called Explain Pain that's written by... Um, it's called Explain Pain. The authors are Mosley, M-O-S-E-L-E-Y, and Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R, Explain Pain. It is written for the layman. It's not some technical clinical book. It's a beautiful book with really cool illustrations. And it basically d- goes into a, a discussion of exactly what I've just been talking about. Hmm. So anyway, that a little off the thing, but I no, think I... worth saying because so many people either are living with pain. And I'm not talking about you rolled your ankle in a soccer game. I'm talking about more of yeah, this like chronic, bed, it hurts. either yeah. severe all the time or people that just consistently are flaring the same thing up, you know, every other week or every month and this. And it's just general considerate. Anybody that would fall under that kind of hypersensitive fill in the blank area. The, uh, the last thing I want to ask you before mm-hmm. just for time, but kind of brain, this is totally off topic. Have you ever done logic puzzles? No. Do you know what they are? Um, I think, but give me an example. So I, so I, I like, I like puzzles. I like thinking, you know, I like, you know, just stuff that mm-hmm. it's it just, even just the past time, I like just mm-hmm. like stressing my brain. That could be reading. That could be thinking through stuff. So logic puzzles are a lot of times are like perfect example. There's like a grid log, logic puzzle that I try to go on and you pick, and I've just been doing this. I picked it up recently, but it'll give you clues Mm-hmm. You pop the clues in, and it's kind of like, okay, if this happens, that can't happen. Mm. So it's, it's logical thinking, but you're trying to figure out basically a word problem or a puzzle right. purely based on logic. So I wasn't sure. You, 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 stri- you strike me as someone that might have done some of these, but it's it's very uh, – one, it keeps your brain active. So I try to like – I like doing stuff that makes my brain think and mm-hmm. work a little bit. It's muscle, so I like to work it out. But the, the idea of logic is – Kind of, you know, I kind of try to think through things logically the best I can, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's it just challenges your mind. It's just like a word problem. Yeah. It's just something I didn't know if you did it, but when we talk about like the brain and stuff. It's like learning that kind of stuff that would put, um, you know, I guess put a stressor on the brain, but hopefully, like longevity wise, might have a benefit down the road. I don't know if it does or not, but no, definitely thinking. Um, there was just something recently in the last week about you know languages. Um, learning a new language could that possibly put off dementia you know as you get yes. older learning i think it might have been in the new york times or something recently um as a rule funny enough i absolutely hate logic puzzles have you done them or are you just based on what i'm talking no about? just anything so like something like this yeah this no, is a very simple one yes but... no i hate that kind of thing okay it's funny and it goes all the way back and I, it, it seems like opposite of what i would expect yes no i completely agree but even as a kid i don't like that sort of thing. I find it frustrating. Maybe I'm, I'm not that smart or my brain doesn't work that way. I think as I've gotten older, do you know what it, it, the deepest I like to get with a puzzle, I love doing Wordle. Okay. And even like three out of 10 times, I just bail halfway through. When once I get frustrated, I get frustrated quite easily. Okay. Um, I have learned myself approaching 50 that again, I, I talk about, you know, possibly being a little bit on the spectrum in certain phases of my life, not yeah. to minimize that by any means, but um, I I have a brain that never shuts off. It's yes. a real problem. Like the yeah, inner I, voice, the constantly thinking, not even about important things, 
Just this nonstop bombardment. It's why I have so many lists, why I, you know, different apps and not even fancy apps, literally the notes and the whatever green app on Apple iPhone. It's just, it's constant. I've just learned I have to put it on paper. Yeah. The minute I think of something, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. And I just, I'm a, a very visible list person like that. Um, I find I don't need any help Doing getting so. my brain stirred up. The, uh, and so I think that's might be why I find those frustrating. It's also, I think, why I find hanging out in the water so much. Now, I've tried to learn surfing a few times. Okay. Just I just don't have the opportunity very often, yeah. so it's kind of hard to hurt a skill no. when you try it for three hours, like every third year when you go in the right place of vacation. But what I've done since I was a little kid is I love body surfing. Okay. Like I'll just go get a bodyboard, find the biggest waves I can, and just like I love, I could play for hours and hours in the waves. And what hit me a couple of years ago was I get out of the water after two hours and I, was, I haven't had a single thought in two hours. Yeah. Literally just, you lose yourself. I'm just waiting, I'm staring at the water, reading the water. Is this going to be the wave to catch, timing it, all of that. And so I think that's why I tend to find that meditative, maybe even skiing the downhill part. I was about to say, skiing to me, Yep, I get that response. But but the problem with the uphill is then you just a lot of time just in your own head marching up a hill with your skis on. But definitely the downhill stuff. Yeah. um, So I tend to gravitate toward more, I don't know even what, I'm not a psychiatrist, what would you call it? More distractive uh, things, I guess, because that would be the opposite. That's like super focused uh, thinking. Yeah. Those type of logic things. Well, I was telling you, so I got the, uh, using them, pretty much every day now the um the bose noise canceling oh so yeah, I use yeah, it for yeah. work but i'll put them on and then i'll play through my phone um uh, just like ambient background music mm-hmm. and that same thing it's just yeah. just sound and what i found is i can get into such a deeper train of thought it's like meditation with like mantra it's like you you say it and yeah. it basically gets you in this trance because you're focused on it but then you yeah. lose yourself in it and then you're like this whole world appears and i find it's almost like a meditative state when i'm listening to the music it's just music. It's just sounds, um, and it could be kind of be like spa-like or you know study or massage or whatever. But it's going on, and I you get lost where you don't even hear the music, right? And I can focus on what I'm doing, but I'm not focusing on what I'm doing at. It's a, it's like a weird play on your brain because it allows you it allows my thought and creativity to open up, even though there's a yeah. distraction. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think yeah. the term that m- people may call that would be it's a distraction technique. Yeah, it you know it's it's a it fills in the quiet, mm-hmm. but it's it, and it's it's something that I found having done it more because it truly gets noise canceling where yeah. it's I mean these this probably could actually act as noise canceling a little bit but it just blocks everything, um, and I just like zone right out yeah. and in a good way for me like because I I use it typically when I'm trying to do mm-hmm. something like stressful on the brain from yep. work but I've had uh, people put the, I've heard of people doing the same song on repeat. When yeah. they're trying to write or you know type up something yeah. or even putting the same movie on in the background yeah. just on like a loop yeah you know but I, well I think it's it's also one if I listen to like people say music if I put a song on or it, not ambient like if I put on a band I like right but it's a song I've heard or an album I've heard thousands of times it just becomes background noise it, right, it acts right, as right. the same thing it's a little more you know enjoyable but it acts yep. as the same then if I put a new song on or even some music that I I'm aware of but don't know well mm-hmm. or I put on a live version of maybe a band that you don't really know how mm-hmm. they talk or what they're saying during the songs um, like you know improv and all that mm-hmm. stuff or talking to the crowd 
that stuff actually draws me more into the music to the point where I get distracted by it. Right. Where if I'm listening to something that is like I know exactly when the notes are going to happen. Yep. I know when the maybe the person talks to the crowd. I know everything yep. about this album. Then it becomes truly background. Well, it's no different than riding in the car on the highway with uh, you know your wife or some friends in the yeah. car, and then all of a sudden you get to the city. Yeah. And what do you find yourself instinctively doing is turning the volume down. Yeah. Because now you're focused on traffic. Yeah. And looking for signs and everything else. Nothing really changed. Yeah. But your ability to kind of focus has has changed. You well, know? that's why and one so, of the best. I mean, everybody's done this. One of the best things I think you could do for for uh, thinking is driving solo through the Adirondacks. Oh, because yeah. you do. I mean, you literally zone out. Yeah. And I. That's why I call the podcast like. I attribute the podcast to a version of if you made a 20 minute podcast, that's like driving anywhere outside of Plattsburgh to center Plattsburgh. Yeah. It's quick. If I said, Hey, drive to Albany, everybody knows it's a two and a half hour ballpark drive down to Albany. And you get to a point about, I would say 30 to 45 minutes into the trip where things start to slow down, calm down. They just kind of get in this like, you know, almost like a dreamlike state of just driving, especially if you're by yourself, yeah. listen to music, podcasts, whatever you're in. So I find that's why a lot of people, when they come on the podcast, they start to settle down after a handful mm -hmm. of minutes in. Mm -hmm. And typically, as you go along, like say we hit like the hour, then it becomes a lot more just relaxing and people kind of fall into a space. You start talking, your your thoughts open up, you go deeper on a stuff, mm -hmm. you make connections, things become a little more clear. But I feel like it's you've taken all the outside distractions and minimized it. Yeah. And there's something to be said by that. And that's why I, I like long form podcasts mm -hmm. because we never would have went to half this stuff had it been a 20 yeah. minute, John, what do you do normally? Like, yeah, oh, I'm yeah, a chiropractor. Yeah, like, no. So, but I think, I think kind of like pulling back the layers on that or even working, like I like to block off when I work typically three to four hours in the morning if I can. Yeah. Like, I really try to block off nothing. That's what I'm doing. My phone shut off. Like um, I'm pretty much a recluse like for the first part of my day. And then my second part of my day is when I do all the other stuff. Yeah. But I got to get into that like that deep mental state. And it's not like I'm in the mental state for four hours. I might only get into the mental state mm -hmm. for an hour and a half of that. But yeah. it, for me, it's it's having to get into that really solid, zoned out time frame. Because um, you can't do it if you're like, I'm going to give myself an hour to work on this yeah. project. Because by the time you settle down, it's like, I got 10 minutes. I won't have time. I just yep. stop. So No, I agree. It's what I tend to listen to, too, when I'm driving or working out is the longer form yeah. podcast stuff. Podcast. Yeah. Well, John, we're going to wrap this up. Um, I'll have you back on. I promise sooner than I did last time. But I always enjoy. It. I, I just I think you're a wealth of knowledge. Wide and, ranging, man. Yeah, yeah and uh, I'm gonna probably have to hold on to this because you wrote down a lot of stuff we didn't even get to. I didn't even talk about nutrition. Well, we talked a little bit about nutrition, like hydration, supplements, recovery protocols, max. I mean, there's some stuff you put on here that. Well, wanna... yeah, I just I had, when this when great. you had asked me about that, I had kind of thought like, hey, we could just do a total episode just on myth busting. Like things I hear every single day in my office that are so wrong. I literally, I, I underscored it and, yeah. and I'm like, I, then that, I started writing down. That would be a whole you. other podcast. Yeah. Well, I'll have you back. This was. Yeah. Cause yeah. we could break through nutrition supplements. I like we to touched on the training, I, but we, there's well, the a VO2, lot. Uh, if anything else, I learned so much more about VO2 that, that really tied it all together to me. Cause I didn't yeah. understand it before, but that was. And the, there's, you know, just as a final thought on that, cause we did spend some time on it. There are several good books on this 80, 20 training method okay um again the, the original guy was was actually a, an md who came up with it in the 80s named phil maffetone i think it's m-a-f-f-e-t-o-n-e -F -F -E -E. don't quote me on that phil maffetone 
But if you do kind of zone one, two, Phil Maffetone, it'll pop up. Um, there's also a, a newer book called 8020 Running. Just that's the name? 80 slash 20. Yep, the numbers. 80 slash 20 Running, I believe, is the title. And I think that's Matt Fitzgerald is the author. And that'll give you some really good, more details about testing, you know, testing yourself it. for your zones yeah. so you get a more accurate number. So if you're, if anyone's interested, those are great resources. Or like I said, I am starting to uh, consider the fact I've got a new associate that just joined yeah. the practice yep. a month ago. So I'm hoping over the next few months that frees up some time. So people want or are interested in possibly working with me or getting a program put together, um, they can always reach out through the um, through my website is probably yep. the easiest. Uh, or they can track me down on Instagram. Send yeah. me a message through there. Yeah, I'll put I'll put a couple things in the the notes. But no, I think that's that's cool. This nice. is uh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, on. I always learn a lot from you, John. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Um, we'll wrap it up there. Like I said, I'll put some stuff in the show notes. John, ideal athlete, athlete chiropractic. Um, consider Margaret or Durkey Street. That's Durkey. It'd be Durkey. So forty three Durkey. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing John for a decade now, and I. Like I said, I don't think I'll ever stop until you tell me not to come. But appreciate I, it, I and always, you can always, book, always enjoy You it, can yeah. go through right through my website is uh, theidealathlete dot com. Perfect. All right, episode two fifty seven, the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.